I, I, I can kill you when you do that to me. <laughs> I hate when he does that to me. Hello, everybody. Oh, Welcome back. There's only like six people watching. Wow, what's going on? You yeah, should, I, I don't know. Is it the chosen that nobody likes, or is it us? Yeah, they uh, they have the same feelings about the show I do. I guess could <laughs> be a mixture of both. I don't know. I like this episode. I have I know I know exactly where things are going to get problematic with Rob. And uh, Jason, what did you think? Did you like this episode? Yeah, overall, I liked it. Um, it was the beginning that there's there were some annoyances with it, and I mean, it's just more of a personal annoyance, I guess. There's nothing. I guess you could argue either way, but overall, I thought the episode was pretty good. And I've always kind of just reading the story of. Um, you know the lady that was hemorrhaging that that touched the uh, garment of Jesus and was healed. I've always been touched by that, and I was really touched by watching it last night. Yeah, so I I actually so th- the thing about the the accounts of uh, the woman hemorrhaging and Jairus's daughter are in all three synoptic gospels, and they're always told together. Mm-hmm. And the thing about those two stories is there, there's, there's an interesting thing going on where the woman's been hemorrhaging for 12 years and Jairus's daughter is 12 years old. And it kind of brings you almost to the, the, the parable of the prodigal son, where it's like the older brother and the younger brother. Right. So there's something symbolically happening there with the old and the new. And it's uh, so if you read all three accounts, they, they're 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 in all three synoptic gospels. They're, the the one that gives you the most depth is Mark, which is unusual because Mark is usually the one who gives you the least depth, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Mark, Mark, Mark kind of gives everything the least amount of depth. Yeah, that's what <laughs> I mean. So one. One. Yeah. Mark is the shortest gospel, and it's almost it's it's almost like he was in a race to see who could finish first, right? Uh, the gospel. He, <laughs> He was pioneering cliff notes. There's also the uh, the the differing endings of Mark, right? So there was an ending that was added on later on to Mark, and some some versions have it and some don't. Where uh, that's always been the uh, I've heard a lot of people who left the faith got caught up on that somehow, you know. Oh. But it, it's almost like um, Mark has the most in depth account of it, which I I think is pretty cool, and. Uh, I actually did like this episode. I thought there was just a couple of things that we'll go over those couple of things, but right off the bat, I will say this. If I ever get divorced, if my wife ever leaves me, it's going to be because of you, Rob. Hold on. on. No, no, no. It is going to be 100% your fault. Because my wife is subscribed to this channel and every single video that goes up has some kind of a thumbnail about Anthony being a misogynist, <laughs> Anthony being a chauvinist. Yeah, but it's like she does. You're acting like she doesn't already know all this. <laughs> she's fine. She's fine with me being that way. She's not happy that the world is seeing that version of me. Well, that's your fault. So, you're the one that put it out there. The funny thing about my wife, I so nobody knows this but Rob. My wife, the the Italian uh, marriage advice video. My wife made me take that down. So Rob re-edited it and remastered the audio on it, and he put it out. And my wife sees it, pat, pat, you know, she sees it come. Now she's me and her are already beefing the day before. Like she's already mad at me, and she wakes up. It might 
she might be like the woman who was healed this week at this moment. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying, right? Like the woman who was healed this week. She might have had yes. that going on at the time. Yes. So she woke up in the worst mood, throws this video on, and she's just furious. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, I'll take it down. So I take it down. It's furious that you are not me, right? No, she was made of me, not you. Okay, good. Oh, yeah, she had no idea that you. My wife doesn't know who does thumbnail. I, I, I don't listen. She doesn't check anything I do out. She, she just knows who does thumbnails. As he Gosh. continues into his misogyny by acting like women don't know anything, they're no, just no, no. oblivious to everything. I, I don't know say, nothing. I just say my wife doesn't watch anything I do. Yeah, all <laughs> so, the bad ones. So, so she tells me to take it down. I take it down. Then I send her a clip of Jeremiah Bannister. Um, and Jeremiah is like, the first video he saw was that video of me. And he's like, you know, I just thought, you know, him and his wife, they, they just must have such a great relationship that she knows he's joking around. And that, so I sent my wife that clip. And then 20 minutes later, she goes back. She's like, all right, just put it back up. I'm sorry. I know it was no big deal. Go ahead. You know, like. <laughs> Paleo Crest saving marriages. He said, I got to tell him that story because he doesn't know that story. Uh, so, yeah, I, uh. I en- I enjoyed this episode. There were a couple of things that um, that got under my skin a little bit, but I love the story of not just the woman hemorrhaging, but I love the healing of Jairus's daughter yeah. and the different versions that uh, Mark's gospel says Talitha Kum or Talitha Kumi or however you pr- pronounce it. Uh, the other versions don't. So I actually thought we would um, go over that you mean, verse. You mean they didn't say rise, little lamb? Yeah, I was gonna say no, that, you know, that for, was a little different. <laughs> it was a little different. Um but I wasn't I wasn't mad at that. Look, I think I wasn't mad at that part. No, and I think we even may have to go and um read Mark's gospel tonight and just go over that because I think it was a pretty accurate portrayal. Like I really do. Like there were a couple of things when I was watching it, I must have had Matthew or Luke's version in my head, and I'm like, I don't, I don't remember that. I don't remember that. And when I went back and read Mark's, it was, it was pretty accurate. Like, you know, the acting might be a little off and a little cheesy at parts, but I thought it was pretty accurate. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's the stuff you know, just completely not in scripture at all, and not intimated anywhere, not in tradition. Yeah. All right, so we'll, that's the part I have problems with. I get it. I get it. And. Uh, I, I'm going to guess right off the bat, let's start with scene one, because scene one starts with Eden having a miscarriage, which I predicted last episode. I'm just going to call that right now. Like I, I said, Eden's probably going to get pregnant and have a miscarriage. Every episode. I what? You say a ton of things every episode. No, but that was a big one. I, I, I've, I've been guessing another one that you we throw enough pretty stuff much at a wall is going to stick eventually. No, exactly. come on. Actually, I, mean, I, I don't remember you saying anything about a miscarriage, but um, I do, I'll go back I and pull the clip. No, no, I believe you. I'm just saying. I just, I'll I go just back and pull the it. clip. And I texted both of you. <laughs> Caitlin says, my wife's love is unabating. <laughs> 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 uh, um, who's Cat Named Mouse? I don't know if I've ever seen Cat Named Mouse. You wow, Cat Named Mouse. First time in the chat. Welcome. The question so, is, are they here because of the chosen reviews or are they oh, well i like to know how, yeah cat yeah. and mouse how did you find us that's a good are question. they catholic are they she, catholic, uh, he or she typed in train wreck and all of the three of us came up <laughs> in the search engine <laughs> i should start taking that 
Yeah. Because it's a hashtag. Yeah. Hashtag train wreck. Uh, uh, all right. So let's get into the Eden miscarriage thing. Cause I know you guys have major issues with it and hey, father Daniel Rook. Welcome. He's left comments for us and mm-hmm. he had a good comment. Yeah. One or two last episode. Yeah. Thank you, father. We, we appreciate you leaving those. Um, okay. So Rob, what you, you had a major issue with the uh, miscarriage scene, right? Aside from the um, absolute uh, grossness of it, <laughs> right? Is there other things you have a I mean, problem with? I, it's not gross. I mean, it's, I don't find it gross. Uh, and it's not like I have an issue with it as, you know, like say it's heresy or blasphemy or something like that. It's just, to me, it just, I wonder say why they you, did it. Well, say what you well, texted me. Cause I thought it was a very good point. Cause you texted something very specifically. You said, I don't like that. They're adding something that's actually like pivotal to the story of Peter. Right. Like, it, right. It, it, so, I mean, this, all we know about Peter is that at one point he was married and then tradition says he had children, at least one child. That's all we know from both scripture and tradition. We don't even know if he was married during the events of the Gospels, right? So the fact that... Well, we know he had a mother-in-law. That's all we know from scripture. Right. That's all we know from scripture. And then there's parts of tradition that say he had a child. So even having Eden in, the, in this show as a character, you know, it's... I guess I'm not against that by itself, but then the question becomes why, why are they playing, you know, on this relationship and especially taking it in the, the way they are other than to make compelling. You movies. think it would lead to motivations of Peter. Like that was, what, I yes. think that's what you texted me. You said, I don't know why they would put such an intense scenario that would actually lead to the motivations that speak to peter as a man right like i, I think that's how, well that's similar to because an event like this is i mean it's it's life-changing right anyone who's been through it would would tell you that that it, even if it happens more than once it it's always life-changing and it always hurts and it always changes the way you look at things so to have something like that happen in the middle of the gospel stories is going to have to have an effect unless they're just I don't know, t- terrible at making TV. It's going to have to have an effect on him as a person, on his motivations, on his relationship with the wife that may or may not actually exist at this point in time. And it just, it's like, why do that when, when you're going to have to make up out of, you know, just completely make up so much of it. Right. I mean, for a group of people who generally are sola scriptura, it just seems completely nuts to me. <laughs> okay. So what what I would say is this, I agree with what you're saying, right? Like this is a major thing you're giving to to the character of Simon. But what look, they're what they're going for is people to relate to the outer characters here. Okay. They're they're trying to show, I mean, look, there are probably women who have experienced something like this and had this trauma. They're going for people who are broken. And it's a look, I told you last episode, I think I said it. I believe every episode for them is an altar call. Right. Like they're every episode for them, they're trying to push people to say, okay, well, if anybody here wants to accept Jesus Christ into their life as their personal Lord and Savior, and this is their way of doing that. Okay. So they're trying to get you to identify with a character. Now, a, a miscarriage is a major event in a woman's life. It affects um, so many women. 
I think Amen. a lot of women have suffered under that. I mean, it's something that, and I, and I don't think men fully comprehend how painful that is for a woman because I don't think it's possible. Yeah. No. And the thing is, uh, the thing with children, especially for men, men don't connect with a newborn until they hit around six months, right? Like not that we don't love the baby and stuff, but there's something about when you come in the door and the baby recognizes you as daddy and gets a little excited for you to be home. There's something about that moment. And it usually happens between like four and six months when the baby gets really happy, when they hear your voice come in the door before that, especially if you have more than one kid, the baby is with mommy and dad has the toddlers, you know, dad's taking care of the bigger kids and the toddlers while mommy has the infant, you know, it's a little different for your firstborn because you're way more involved in your firstborn and stuff. But especially once you have more than one kid, husbands really connect with the kid. Once they hit six months, you can throw them up in the air a little bit, get them to smile and laugh. So I don't think men can ever understand the, the pain that a woman feels a child growing in her womb and loses that child. And I just think that's a thing they're going for here. So I, you know, I get, I, I do understand where you're coming from completely though, Rob. How, how'd you, what did you think about it, Jason? Um, just basically what I text you guys last night and it's more of a personal, uh, thoughts on the situation. I mean, I can't prove it either way, but Jesus, who he is, <clears throat> I kind of find it difficult to believe that Jesus would, you know, being God, he would know that this event was about to happen at a time when a woman would really need her husband to be with her, to leave her alone for it. And then on top of it, you see last episode where he shows up at the door unannounced with all, you know, with several of the apostles. And again, he seems oblivious to what's going on. And, and then at the very end too. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and that, at the very end is, is very oblivious. And it just seems like I would think in, in my personal opinion, Jesus would be more compassionate to that situation to where he, he at a minimum wouldn't barge in after he knows that she's had this miscarriage and take up their space, ask her to serve lunch, know that her and Peter are, are at odds right now because of this. I just feel like our Lord would have more compassion and allow Peter to attend to his marriage because, again, we know how highly Christ and, and the church esteem marriage, right? So Okay, okay, but also— Jesus does say, whoever leaves husband, wife, sister, I, brother, father, I did, mother. I did think about that, but then the more I thought about it, I think in this situation, that might be taken out of context a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, listen, here's the thing. I in think this situation, what, they're, at least. what they're going for in, in this situation specifically, like I, I, you guys are both making really good points. The, the thing I think they're working up toward is something major with jesus and eden some kind of an encounter right so like i think it uh i don't know if it was the first season when when jesus heals her mother like when he heals simon's mother-in-law because that's a major event and it happens early on it's one of the first things that happens it's in season one eden there's a point where jesus after he heals her mother he he tells eden like i see you because eden feels mm -hmm. so unseen with all this that's going on simon's being taken away from her and i think that her whole story is going to come around and she's going to see that, you know, uh, not like losing the baby may have been a bit of divine providence for Simon to be able to go off and leave his family and go do what he has to do. Potentially. And I guess, I guess my, if I had to pick one thing that I had to issue with this whole, uh, 
storyline here as far as the miscarriage is that Jesus just seems oblivious to the whole thing, the entire yeah. episode. Yeah. But See, I think for me, like, ahead, what's the on. what's the point of them fleshing out Eden as a character? Like, um, I think, uh, like relatable. I said, Walter I think it's relatable, like, 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 like setting up, like, well, like setting up situations like what we're seeing with Gaius. Now that we know he has a servant that he loves, it seems pretty certain that he's going to be the centurion whose servant is healed. You know, that sort of that sort of like fictional setting up makes sense because they're setting up the gospel. An actual story from the gospel. Right, right. But whatever they're setting up here, I don't see how it's going to it doesn't seem to be setting up anything up in the gospel. So then the question becomes either A, they're doing this just for good TV or B, they think they can write a better, you know, version of salvation history than God himself. Um, I don't think so. I think I think this whole show is an attempt to humanize the apostles and not to humanize Jesus as much, which it, which it is doing. But what I think the attempt is to humanize the apostles and show uh, they were just regular people like like all the saints are just people like we even do that with the saints not just the apostles like when you read about a lot of the saints it's almost like you think they're like they were born sanctified like they were i mean mary was and joseph and john the baptist maybe but i mean you read augustine's life augustine was a mess until he has that conversion and then even after his conversion there had to be it wasn't like an i don't know sometimes it's it seems like we make it like a, a conversion is instant and it's like this person never went back to their old ways. And that's I, the one thing this show so, is kind of doing is kind of making me like, like even after your conversion, you do have many falls and many stumbles and, and, and your life is a constant call to conversion. It's not just a one-time thing. Well, after Paul's conversion, when, when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, how long was it before he actually started going out and preaching the gospel? Years, I think it was three well, years, he, he, uh, and then there was eight years where he stayed in uh Tars- Tarsus, he stayed in Tarsus for like yeah. eight years. When uh, like Peter and Peter sends him back to Tarsus and he's building tents and he's just, just preaching in Tarsus, yeah, so. yeah. And I, I'm just saying, I, I, I'm uh supporting your, your idea that conversion is an instant, that it's a process, right? Right, it is, and, and, and even Paul, and that's you, why. It, that's why he tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it's not a one-time event and you're done. You know, you, I mean, obviously you have the initial conversion, but you continually have to work on, um, you know, drawing yeah, yourself well, closer to if God. You, if you read Paul's writings, so when you, when you start reading his early writings, starts off by saying like, uh, I'm the greatest of sinners, uh, or, or maybe, or however you were, like by the end, he's saying me, the least of all the saints, the worst mm-hmm. of the world. Like, so the deeper he grows closer to Christ, the lower he sees himself and he starts seeing, you know, he's still a little bit hubris in the, in the, in the early days of his conversion. He's running around, but by the end, when he's talking in the later letters, he, like, he's really like, you saw Christ increases and he decreases, you know, it's not, it yeah. wasn't an instant thing. There was a deep conversion going on there. So, yeah. And, um, and- and I had mentioned, you know, on episode one that that was one of the reasons that I particularly like this show is because how it humanizes the apostles, make makes them more relatable than the way we seem to view them, you know, th- throughout our years as, as Christians, right? I don't know that I would go as far as Rob uh, did in, in his, 
But uh, I, I do tend to think that the whole maybe, maybe the whole Eden storyline, one of the reasons at least, major reasons is, uh, like you mentioned earlier, it's trying to make her more relatable to modern day I women. I was just about to say what Post Millennial Linda Chris is saying. Okay. So uh, Katney Mass said, What's the point of Thomas and Rima? It would make no sense for them to get married. There is nothing in the record that indicates that Thomas was married to a fellow disciple. Thomas and Rima are never getting married. Let's just say that right now. And I think uh, prepping uh, post post millennial call at this it point, I wouldn't leave anything. <laughs> nah, they're <laughs> not getting any possibility out. <laughs> there's no way. There's no way they're getting married. They're just setting it up, and you're going to see that they have to leave. Like they're they're showing the sacrifice involved with following Christ. I believe so. <laughs> it wasn't ignored i was listening to the whole thing he said and i just wanted to get to that comment rob stop stirring stirring the pot all right let's move on to scene two scene two jairus's daughter is sick um i don't know if it's the doctor or the rabbi starts asking him about death arrangements literally thought the same thing this time, not to cry this time. <laughs> you guys can just say these things you don't have to write them this show oh, it's funnier this way <laughs> Well, Jason, I'll tell you, I'll make a point to you. If you write your comments instead of saying them, I'll actually read them. Oh, that, that's why I'm doing <laughs> So next time you ask me what I think, give me a couple minutes to type. Just type yeah. it out and I'll actually listen to you. He's, he's like, oh, hold on, Anthony. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Caitlin's <laughs> being mean to me now. <laughs> yes, we're very interactive with the audience. So, so if you guys watch this on the replay, you guys should definitely try to catch a live episode because if you guys make fun of me, I'm gonna put the comment up. Well, if you're good, if you're nice to me, I'm gonna put the comment up. If you're mean to me, Rob will put the comment up. That's usually how it works. So we do have to I remember was- I I do put these episodes on audio podcast, so if you're listening to audio, you're you're missing some stuff. So yeah, you are definitely, but uh, all of our shows are like that, so. All right, scene two, Jairus' daughter is sick. The rabbi doctor asks him about death arrangements. Jairus kind of just rushes out, and he's going to find Jesus. I, I don't think there's much to talk about in that scene, right? Okay, good. Uh, yeah, scene no. three, I have a lot to say. Oh, scene three, you get Eden Ooh. and Simon awkwardly preparing Simon's lunch. I got a little criticism of Simon, too. I mean, he's like, whatever I did, I'm sorry. It's my fault, and I'm sorry. And she's like, are you did you Whatever you did, I'm in Peter a Trump uh, accent. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make him look bad too. Look, here's the thing, Simon. Like nobody talks like that. Like, yeah, come on, I know what he's going for. He's like, whatever I did. Like, this is a very. Um, <laughs> it's like here, here's my whole here's my whole beef with this whole situation. The lack of communication. Now, I I, I mean, I don't understand the whole idea oh, of that. Actually, being sounds like mad. a good point. Hold on. Actually, I can't imagine Anthony ever having a communication problem. Oh, there no. are problems, but it won't be a lack of communication. Yeah, it won't be a lack of communication. That's what I'm saying. It's like I don't, I don't get. I, I can't grasp somebody being mad at somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I can't understand being mad at somebody and not telling them. Like, what do you, what do you do? It's passive aggressive to me. So when I see Eden going, whatever you did. Okay, and she won't tell him. It's like, Eden, you had a miscarriage. Peter, we have to talk. Simon, we have to talk. Like, something major happened. Like, what, uh, Do these two even have a relationship? I don't understand. If something major like that happens in my between my wife and me, or my wife has... My wife uh, uh, also doesn't not say things. Like, if, if there's an issue... Like, she'll give me silent treatment 
sometimes because she knows it drives me crazy. But not like this. Like this seems just so passive aggressive, and she's expecting him to read her mind. They and act I think like there Minnesotans, are women like that. not like, Jews. Huh? They act like Minnesotans, not Jews. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Like, will will if your wife is mad about something, will she not tell you? Like, will she just be mad and not, not say anything? Not like um, consciously. It's just her temperament. She'll uh, let it build and build and build. And I have a tendency to do that too. Yeah, so so I think it's a temperamental thing. So this is a temperament thing. Okay, yeah, so here we go. <laughs> well, no, every look, episode, right, Jason? It's but but Jason, you're more clo- you're closer to me, even though I think I, I think I when you took the say, test when you I, took the I, test, you had Rob's temperament, but you seem more similar to me. Oh, I think. Okay, he's, he's choleric, melancholic. Yeah. Oh, okay. Melancholic. So it was funny because earlier today I was texting Anthony. You know, I think we're in real life. If we were to hang out more, we'd probably see how similar we are than than we even think, right? Because I'm kind of like I, I think so like, right off the bat. I'm kind of like Anthony, like my wife, she'll try to, she'll either just think about stuff or she'll just not say anything and try to let it go. But obviously when something's bothering, you can tell, and it drives me crazy. I'm kind of like, okay, just say what's wrong. Let's talk about it. Let's, I I don't know. I don't know if that's a feminine or masculine trait, but I'm like, I got to know. I think it's a choleric trait. I think that's yeah. what Rob's saying. Like, uh, I think a choleric is co- confrontive, like confrontative. And my right? wife is, is very non-confrontative. My confrontational, wife, confrontational. Yeah. Like, a, like, like a, the choleric wants to get it out. Like, they, I think that is a, a choleric temperament trait, right? Yeah. So, but I think the the melancholic and phlegmatic tends to bury it a little bit, and they'll they'll be mad, but they won't say anything about it. I think, right? Yeah, like like my wife is very non-confrontational and will just just about let anything um, try to let most things go to avoid confrontation. I mean, obviously within reason. I mean, I've seen I've seen Mama Bear come out a few times when it comes to her kids, obviously. But but that might be the um, melancholic dump. Well, they're getting it when they start messing with their kids. <laughs> <laughs> and you can have me to thank for all the, the buildup. <laughs> okay, so look at it from Eden's perspective. She's in a competition with the Supreme Being. It's a no-win situation. That's true, too, right? Like, So look, I, I'll say this. Um, when I So when I had my conversion, um, my wife wasn't on the same page as me. And there were there was some tension there because... I loved God. I loved Mary more than my wife and she was jealous. Right. So, so I I think that's an amazing comment. Like there's, she's in competition with, with Jesus. Right. And, and, and that's a real thing when one spouse has their conversion and and the other doesn't. Um, And I really riled up Twitter today when I made, I mean, I make this comment all the time. I don't know why today it struck a nerve. I said that, uh, somebody said something about not marrying a spouse of the same faith. And I said, men can marry women that are not Catholic. I actually agree women, with that. More, yeah, women more can't marry not. a non-Catholic man. If you take your faith seriously and all these women jump down my throat and they're like, I know, I know husbands that convert. I'm like, great. That's not hey, my point. But, but, but I agree with you for the most part with the one caveat and Jesus talks about it. You, as a man, most of the time your wife is going to follow the man in, in many, many different ways, including faith, right? You just got to make sure that if you're the man, that you're not unequally yoked, that they don't have a bigger influence on you than you do them, right? But I think men are more successful <coughs> with that than, than, 
than the wives are. It's not just about the wife. It's about the children. And no matter what study you read, children that are raised in a home where the father believes the faith, mm-hmm. 95% retention rate, they become Catholic. When you flip that around, it's just the wife. It's like a 40%. Well, it, if it's the it, husband and wife, it's the same thing as just the husband. Well, that and look at it this way, like for a Catholic to marry a non-Catholic, you have to get a dispensation. And part of that is you have to agree that the children will be raised Catholic. Yes. Now, when the, when the Catholic is the woman and the father is non-Catholic, mm-hmm. that means that in that sense, the woman has a weird head of householdship over at least the raising of the kids. And that's just unnatural. So it's it's much less likely to be successful because it's going against nature. Yeah. And now that doesn't mean husbands never convert. I wasn't saying that at all. It's the point is it may take 10 years to convert. It may take 15 years to convert and your children are being raised during that time. And your children, your the husband is the spiritual head of the home. So even, all right, so I convert first, right? I'm raising my kids Catholic. My wife gets a dispensation to marry me because she's Lutheran. She doesn't have a convert. She has her, she originally converts just to make sure that we're the same faith as the children. She doesn't have her deep actual conversion until eight or nine years after that. But my wife always followed my lead and came to mass with me because she was allowing me to be the spiritual head of my home. So my children were never without the Catholic faith. If it was the other way around and she was the one leading the family, the children in faith and teaching them catechism and all that, it wouldn't work. I teach, I mean, everybody makes a big deal of homeschooling. If you're not in a traditional parish with a great, catechism class i say home catechize i i catechize my children i would never leave that to my wife that's my role as a as a father that's my role to catechize my children so i went to my parish and my parish lets me teach my children the faith my daughter makes her confirmation march 28th we just got all the paperwork it's not the wife's role. it doesn't mean the wife doesn't participate it's just the children will retain it way more if the the husband is the one taking that lead role and the husband takes his faith seriously. Um, what are some of these? My, my wife, I saw my wife pointed me. In, okay. So my wife pointed me in the right direction and I took the lead. That's great. Yeah. See, I'm, 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 I'm trying to find that statistic because I actually had this conversation. Um, Eric Salmon's wrote a good article on it. Yeah. Check, where, so check crisis magazine. So, so now, I, because like two okay, or three days ago, I was talking to somebody about, the important, or we were all talking about the importance of of men in a family, right? Because today we're told by society that a woman doesn't need a man, toxic masculinity is bad, and blah, 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 right? And to go with Anthony said, yeah, it's like a vast majority of kids will attend church through their adult years, continue to be faithful if both parents attend. It's, I think it's pretty pretty far below 50% if it's just the mother and the father. 40%, you still, it's 40% and, and, if it's the mother and the, alone. And if it's just the father, it's still a pretty high number. So again, it's in the nineties. Yeah. I, I didn't remember it being that high. That's what I was trying to find what, what it was, but, I but think either the, way, the, I think the it's almost, it's like the, the difference in if it's just the father and the father and mother is negligible. I just, I just put, yeah, it's like five to 10%. It's like negligible. It's yeah. like, it's so it's so minor. It's almost like it doesn't matter if the wife and it doesn't look. There are so many. Look what Margot said. Margot said her mother led them in the faith. She has two siblings. The two siblings aren't going to mass. She is right. My mother led my siblings and I in the faith. My parents have nine kids. Four of them are in the faith. 
The other five don't go to mass, don't take their faith seriously at all. You're looking at a 40% out of nine kids. I mean, my family's the perfect statistic, you know? And it's like, and my dad, like, went to mass on occasion. Like, he did have a conversion at one point, then he got caught back up into his old ways and stopped going to mass again. And it was never him taking the lead and being the one saying, look, you guys need to, he never catechized us at all. It was always my mother took the lead in that. So, I'm not coming down on women in any way. It's just the way God has deemed things to be. The oh, men are the spiritual. Le- men are the spiritual leaders of their family, and if it's they don't this. take that seriously, your family will suffer spiritually. I mean, that's that's just fact. Okay, so let's move on. Scene four: James, John, James, and John are at home, and uh, their father Zebedee tells them about selling his boats. One thing really stood out to me in this scene that annoyed me uh, so much: that he sold his boat. What kind of man sells his boat? Right no, I'm going to be honest. I, I'll contradict you on that. That too, though, because <laughs> like he should have kept at least a pleasure boat. Like I'm all right with you selling the, the fishing business, but you got to keep a pleasure boat, Zebedee. What are you doing? Um, no, so so he uh, he comes in and he says something, and the wife goes, "What in Israel? Like what in the heavens? What? That's which this modern." This modern way they're trying to what in Israel? It was so got under my skin that I know I said I wasn't going to talk about the accents, but I had to. But the thing about Zebedee, uh, the father, there's something. Hey, excuse so, me for excuse me for just like five minutes, Anthony. This is like the fourth time you cut me off when I was about to say something. But go ahead. No, I'm saying I'm going to get off here for about five minutes. Just keep going. Oh, okay. Then, you know. <laughs> Every time I'm getting up to say something, he cuts me off. <laughs> Where's he going? How are you leaving us in the middle of the show, you bum? All right. So the thing about Zebedee is he's running he's, down the street to get beer, probably just like I hope so. Beer. Lighten up a little bit. <laughs> Stop whining about me not paying attention to him. <laughs> He's not gonna watch the replay, don't worry. Um, what's it called? Oh, so the father Zebedee. There's something so like um like joyous about this guy right like like he really um made a point to to say um like okay so my whole my whole life growing up was we were working while waiting for the messiah my father was growing up working waiting for the messiah he's like the messiah is here right it's like and it was something like really joyous and like it's like he has such a good relationship with his sons and he's he's sharing the faith with his children. He's a really a role model for fathers and husbands and, to and talk to their what kids. Is that message he was saying about uh you know the the Messiah is here right now, so I'm not gonna work and wait like you know my father did is very similar to later in the episode when Jesus was telling him, you know, you fasted before, praying for my arrival, you'll fast after when I'm gone, but I'm here now, so now, what, what, so should we jump to that scene? Um, because we're, it's kind of, we're, we're kind of talking about it, right? So, Jason, what do you Robin, mean lighten up? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> it was a test. He tested gonna, Anthony. He's not going to listen to this. Don't worry. <laughs> listen, so Rob just brought up the, um, the, the, the idea that uh, Zebedee is saying we've been waiting on the Messiah mm-hmm. and it kind of, it kind of links to the scene where Jesus is talking to them about the um, fasting. Right. So right. everybody knows the parable. It's not even a parable. So in, in the gospels, I wish he would have done this like properly because in the gospels, it's the Pharisees confronting them 
And the Pharisees come to them and they say, John the Baptist fasts. Why do you and your disciples not fast? Mm-hmm. And Jesus says that my, you know, John, John fasted, but my disciples don't fast because the bridegroom is with them. When the bridegroom leaves, then they will fast. The thing is, Protestants have such a lack of understanding of the concept of the bridegroom. Absolutely. A total lack of understanding of the bridegroom because they don't understand the, the, the idea of marriage being the bookends of scripture. So the, 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 the Bible opens in Genesis the, with the marriage the of Adam and Eve. The very first covenant is the marriage covenant. The marriage covenant between Adam and Eve. The first miracle Jesus performs is the wedding at Cana. And then the final chapters of scripture are the marriage supper of the lamb. And the idea that heaven is a wedding feast. It is the wedding supper of the lamb. And that what we are doing every week when we go to mass is celebrating the marriage supper of the lamb that like Protestants lack so much in this area. So it it makes sense that they would throw this in out of context like they did. And it's, it's such a deep, uh, one of the greatest talks or books I've ever read is by Brant Petrie. Um, and mm-hmm. it's, it's the, what is it? The, uh, Jesus and the Jews, the Jewish root. Uh, no, no. You're talking about the other one. The bridegroom. The bridegroom one. Okay. Yeah. Jesus. Uh, I, I don't know. He, a lot of his books are the Jewish roots of something, but it's, yeah. I have the book. I, I'll, Jesus, I'll try to the bridegroom, the greatest love story you yep. ever told. I was gonna say yeah. And and so if you go ever go and get a chance to listen to just the brand preach Petrie talk, it's an hour long. I mean, he weeps while giving the talk. Like, like the the marriage is consummated on the cross. The cross is the wedding bed. Like that is why Jesus says from the cross, it is consummated. I so think you the, can get that talk for free on form for any, or at least you could a few years yeah, ago. I think you're right. It's on form. It may be on YouTube also. A lot of his talks are on YouTube, but it's definitely on formed. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. I did. You can always cut me off. I cut you off all the time. I was trying to. Perfect. He gave us permission. (laughs) You know what? I'm not going to lie. I did cut him off on purpose. Well, I only said it because you got mad that I wasn't listening to you. What's that? (laughs) I only said it because you got mad. I was reading comments instead of listening to you. Um, So, so, okay. So let's stay on that. um, Jesus and the bridegroom conversation because he also talks about the wineskins, right? Yeah. Uh, it was a frustrating <laughs> one. That was I forgot about uh, that one. That one was kind of like, all right. <laughs> it just said like so silly. The wineskin like, itself was fine. It's the their little commentary you yeah, did what, afterwards. Yeah. Absolutely. But I guess they were trying to dumb it down because it is a tough teaching, right? Like it, I guess if you're reading scripture and you just read Jesus talking about, well, you know, new wines need new wine skins. It's like, what is he, what, what is he even talking about? This is a weird one, right? It's, does he, I, I, I have to go back and read. Does Jesus explain that one to the disciples? Let's see. Look that one up because I know. So when, when Jesus gives the, um, the, the parable of the sower and the seeds, he gives that to the general population so that people hear, people listen, but don't hear. They, they see, but don't perceive. Which, uh, which of the synoptic uh, gospels would you like? Um, let's go. I think, Matthew. I think Luke has the most about it, but I can't. Yeah. I think Luke's looks the longest. We'll go Matthew. You don't need to be the longest. <laughs> 
I'm saying you don't need to read the longest one. You even read Mark. Matthew chapter nine. Margo doesn't like me on the right hand side. Just slide yourself over. I don't know how to do that. It's You're the tech guy. It's point and click. What do you mean? Okay. Um Okay, here we go. Then came oh, wow. to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but thy disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the children of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then they shall fast. And nobody putteth a piece of raw cloth unto an old garment, for it taketh away the fullness thereof from the garment, and there is made a greater rent. Neither do they put new wine into old bottles, Otherwise the bottles break, and the wine runneth out, and the bottles perish. But new wine they put into new bottles, and both are preserved. Um, and no, and then right after that is when Jairus comes up. So he doesn't actually like explain that to them, right? So it is a tricky one, right? Like, so you hear that, and you're like, what is he even talking about? Like, what does he mean, new wineskins and old wine, new wine and old wine skins like what and it, it really is that um the the kingdom it's it's going to be different than the people of israel like it's going to it's going to look different and it needs a new form but it's not what they say it is in the show yeah, no. It's not revolutionary. It's yeah. It's, it's really it's bothering me that they keep going to that and saying we're starting a revolution. I'm going to start a revolution. Like that's not. It's not. Like, yes, Christianity doing. was revolutionary for the way the world <clears throat> was at the time. No doubt about it. But the Christianity wasn't a revolution against Judaism. Was it against Pharisee, you know Pharisaical Judaism? Sure, but that wasn't actual Judaism. That's that's what Judaism is now. It's not yeah, what it's it really the fulfillment was. of it, right? And it's not even revolutionary to the social order, right? It's like give Caesar what is Caesar's, uh, obey those who have authority over you. It's not pick up arms and go to war. It's really not like right. there. There is segments where Jesus talks about you know the importance Freeing of keeping the captives, and, right? There, yeah. there are times where Jesus says that for for the most part, he's not a revolutionary. That's very uh liberation theology ish like it's it's you know it's it has that protestant uh feel to it um and then he just unlocked a new method of bothering people wait with what yes. <laughs> juggling thumbnails <laughs> <laughs> oh i'll bother you guys with that about all right so let's go we're gonna go we're gonna go back to the order so scene five thad and another apostle because i have no idea who this guy is it's it's Thad and somebody else. Yeah, I don't remember who it was. I don't know his name. There's twelve uh, It's confusing. Apostle. They, yeah, I don't know. Maybe. Well, well, being Catholic, being Catholic, we should be used to remembering a lot of kids' names. <laughs> or a lot of people's names, I should say. Um. So. Let's see. Okay. So yeah. So Thad and some other apostle who I've seen like twice. We they stumble on Veronica. Um, and they have this whole thing. This scene I, was a little cringy to me. Um, just how, uh, I don't know. Like the, the, I thought the scene where Jesus actually, where Veronica actually touches Jesus thing. Like I thought they did that really well, 
but the lead up to it, it was just, it wasn't crazy about the, the dialogue and it, but it was still all right. You know, there was nothing to complain about or anything. Um, Nathaniel. Oh, it was Nathaniel. Okay. Fat and Nathaniel. It was also Bartholomew, right? I swear. I said Bartholomew. Um, then we go, and we go. Uh, Zebedee sees his new property, uh, where he just bought this um, olive yeah. grove, right? Mm-hmm. With the olive grove. Yeah. And who's with him? There's definitely Judas, because remember they make a comment oh, about Judas, because Judas, Judas says he was used to buying property but never seeing it, or something along those lines. Okay, it was Judas, Judas and uh, what's her name? I don't know. Uh, was it Mary? Never really was Mary pagan, Magdalene there? The pagan chick. What's the pagan lady? I think Mary was there, but then the and Mary Magdalene in the Ethiopian or what, what, wherever she was from, right? The yeah. the one yeah. that seems to be like not Rima. Yeah. Well, no, no. Okay, so wait, real quick, we didn't talk about this last episode uh, where she didn't want to sell her jewelry because it had a lot to do with her family and culture and stuff. Do you? Uh, Mary says to her, "I think you're holding on to your 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 paganism, and it seems like." Uh, uh, was it animalism or something? I don't know what she said. Do you animism. think is that? animism is that what's going on there do you think she is no i think pam earlier in the episode had a comment let me see if tamar. i can find it real tamar tamar yeah uh hold on man that was a while ago apparently right here tamar is an ethiopian princess and guardian of the royal family in ethiopian cultural history recorded in her jewelry she can sell the cra- she can't sell the crown jewels so i don't think it's paganism or anything like that like i think and that's why i like what was so cool about when the church comes in like hey, that's who's here well she no, has well tamar, tamar, has, tamar uh, has her family has the ark of the old covenant probably today in ethiopia <laughs> <laughs> I know. Is that is that lore? No, the, uh, there's a story that one of the churches in Ethiopia houses the Ark of the Old Covenant or something like that. And it's there's probably. potential actual archaeological evidence that it at least was there at some point, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Um, but so, now, isn't there something in the Acts in Acts of the Apostles um, with an EP, Ethiopian? Yeah. So Philip. Ethiopian unit. Phil, yeah. yeah. So Philip. What's cool about that story is. It's actually um, so. If you read the, the story of Philip meeting the Ethiopian eunuch, what hinders me from being baptized is what he says. Right and now, oh, what yeah. happens after is Philip rises into the sky, just like Jesus, just like um, uh, who was taken up to heaven in the chariot uh, uh, in the Old Testament, no. huh? Uh, like uh, was it Enoch Elijah Elijah Elijah? Yeah. So it's it's like that story is it follows the same pattern like typologically as the uh, as the story of Elijah. Uh, like there's something to do with like animal skins coming down, and then so it and it follows the same thing as the ascension. So I, I I'd have to go and do a little research on it, but I I heard a whole thing on how like Philip when he disappears he actually rises up and. He disappears up on the clouds of heaven. Um, so that's a pretty cool story. But yeah, so now what, what I was going to say about Tamar is w- what I think is so cool about what the church did was proper enculturation, not this imitation enculturation that you see with Pachamama and things like that, right? It's 
the church actually would take these custom. Rob beat Jason at a Bible trivia question. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the church proper enculturation is the church well, would baptize <laughs> certain elements of culture, right? So even the Roman missile, like there are elements in the mass that have to do not like they have to do with things the way the Romans worshipped. There oh, are yeah. elements. Well, the, the vestments are all the Roman vestments military. are Roman vestments the that, that the priests would wear, like that pagan priests would wear. So you still see the priests in the Roman garb that these you know pagan priests would wear and things like that. There are things from the mass that properly enculturated things that we baptized and made Catholic. So it's, you know, there, there are things that you can, you know, when you see a prop, we saw an Ethiopian Christmas mass video the other day, right? And, and this Ethiopian Christmas mass, it, it wasn't like liturgical dancing that we see in America where it's, you know, there's nonsense. It was beautiful liturgical dancing that, is properly enculturated in this Ethiopian setting that has been going on since the third, fourth century or however long it's been going on. Yeah. The, the, the Alexandrian rite, specifically the, the Giyas rite is what the Ethiopians celebrate. And that has had um, liturgical dance since, you know, yeah, the second or third century. Yeah. And, and uh, Cardinal Sarah talks about, the the church baptizing African culture and heritage and bringing all these things, you know, throughout, throughout history. And uh, yeah, Anthony, I, I found what you were talking about with Philip. I was looking for it. And at oh, the end of Acts chapter, at the end of Acts chapter eight, it says, and when they Philip and the eunuch were come up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord took away Philip and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. So, yeah, like, and I think different translations will actually say it took Philip up, right? Like it's like it follows the same pattern as the story of Elijah, as the story of the ascension. And then it's so like one of my my favorite thing in scripture is typology and seeing um uh just just things foreshadowed and things like that, and then seeing them fulfilled. It, it, it really like people that are into like the Marvel cinematic universe, because at the end of a movie you'll see like at the end of a uh or at the end of like a the guardians of the galaxy you'll see a clip of thor and you see how all these different characters intertwine into this universe like the old testament and the new testament are you comparing the the holy bible to the marvel cinematic no i'm comparing people that like that kind of thing they're missing out on the greatest story ever told they're missing out on this whole thing that connects from the time of Adam and Eve until, you know, the, the end of time in revelation where there's this whole interconnect. And I know you like, it really was a terrible comparison, but <laughs> this is the Marvel universe, but you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. Yeah. And this, and this, uh, this is so much better if people would just take the time <laughs> to, to understand it. Cause again, one of the things that really drew me to the Catholic church was understanding their interpretation of scripture through typology. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a totally different way of reading scripture from Protestants. I mean, anytime I've ever spoken to Protestants, it's like, they don't grasp that. Like they think it's just like prophecies in Isaiah. They don't get that Moses when he's born, 
a call goes out to kill all the newborns. Just like when Jesus is born, a call goes out to kill all the newborns, right? All the male children have to get killed. So Moses escapes to Egypt. Uh, Jesus that, escapes to Egypt. That, yeah, that, that Joseph, Old Testament Joseph goes to Egypt to be saved from his family. And he's sold for 20 pieces of silver as right, a slave. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like all well, these little things. All these things from the Old Testament you see fulfilled in the life of Christ. Well, see, it, it's kind of a pick and choose a lot of times because a lot of them will try to understand the historical context, but then they read scripture in present day context, right? And, and it's kind of weird. It's kind of like what we were talking about uh, offline earlier today with John 6. You know, there was a Protestant uh, minister that said the reason people left was because Jesus was asking them to do stringent things and and that's not why yeah, so they uh, they were leaving and i think i've mentioned it before i know i've mentioned it before but i don't know if i've done it on this series about the chosen but when i understood the typology connections i no longer had an issue of understanding when jesus says i came to fulfill not to destroy the old law because i kind of always struggled with what does that mean exactly and then once you understand the typology especially as the catholic church teaches it you see exactly what jesus meant and how much better scripture really does go together it really it really does fit together a lot more smoothly and really just perfectly yeah yeah it's 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 it, it's what really makes you know the story is true it's like it's it's not just the prophecies by the by the prophets. It's seeing all these events are foreshadows of things to come. And it's not just it's not just the way scripture unfolds, it's the way the world unfolds to us too. It's like so when you read uh the the, the apocalypse and you see these events, if you look back through history, like there's a great talk by uh Father Wolf where he says, um, where he talks about the French Revolution as a type of end times. And it's a great talk because he shows how the, the, the French Revolution was a mini apocalypse. You know, it wasn't the apocalypse. It was a mini apocalypse. And whatever we're coming up on now, guys, it's a type of apocalypse. Just like the, the jab was you couldn't buy or sell if you didn't get that jab. That was a type of the mark of the beast. Like it just, it wasn't the mark of the beast. It was just a type and a foreshadow of it because that's how reality unfolds to us. It's, it's really a, a well, a, a, and, and, and what Pam says right here, let, let me add as well that to support the Catholic teaching on the real presence, part of the, uh, during the Passover, what did the Jews have to do as well? They also had to literally eat the lamb, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so if, if Jesus if you didn't is eat the Passover lamb, your first lamb, we son. have to literally eat our new Passover lamb, which of course is what we do through Holy Eucharist. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, the whole connection to Isaac, Isaac being, uh, you the know, brought up born. the mountain mm -hmm. with the mountain, Mount Moriah, which is the Mount of Olives. If no one, you know, realizes that it's, it's the same mountain, um, he, he's a. Uh, he he does so willingly because um, Abraham is like 120 years old at this point. So carries Isaac, the wood on his back. He carries the wood on his back yeah. up the up, up the Mount of Olives. Willingly, willingly, willingly gives up what he thought was going to be his life, but is is spared. But like I, I was listening, I forget what I was listening to, but they even talk how the ram that was then offered was found the in thorns. the thorns. And thorns, the, the thicket, the thorns, it was stuck in the, the thorns. 
And, yeah, and, G- uh, and God says to Abraham, I will provide myself the lamb. He doesn't say, I'll provide you a lamb. He says, I will provide myself the lamb. Like, I will, I will be the lamb. And it's like the, it's one of those, th- it's one of those amazing, like, typological events that you just i mean i think a lot of protestants even see that as a typological event because it's it's so in your face blatant that one you know i i want to i want to tell you they do the the ram afterwards or what would they have they ate it yeah (laughs) uh y'all remind me because i I don't want to say it on on air because i'm not 100 percent sure if it's correct or not but there's an interesting story that i want to tell you guys if, if you remind me afterwards about kind of this typology stuff See what you think about it. Just remind me. Yeah, remind you in the green room. Um, okay, so let's move on. Let's go. We got um, now Simon and Gaius are repairing the water problem, and we learn about Gaius's servant, who is like a son to him, which kind of confirms every one of. I mean, I'm I'm not going to claim that I'm the only one that guessed that. I mean, it's really been being set up since season one, right? Like mm-hmm. since season and one, we've been. That is exactly what he's claiming right now. <laughs> I mean, I. I'm the one that said it. I don't. I was trying to be humble about it, but no, you're right. I've been saying no. So I mean, since season one, they've been kind of setting guys up with this peculiar interest in Jesus, right? So now you have uh, Simon and guys talking, and Simon's kind of laughing at Gaius. Uh, uh, oh, you have a servant, and he's like, "Don't laugh at this. Like, this is not just a servant. His parents died, and I've been. I took him in under my care. My son plays with him. I, I and he." Even I think he even says I'm, I'm not 100, but I think he says I even you know he's like a son to me. I, I mean, he said something along those lines. Something yeah. very similar to that, you know, like this this kid really means a lot to him. Um, uh, it, I, I always said when everybody says something about me doing right, I post it. So Anthony is spot on. There are <laughs> echoes of uh, 87, 70 tribulations and shadows of the final tribulation all throughout history. Many minor apostasies, chastisements, and little antichrists on the way to the triumph. So yeah, that's like how reality unfolds to us. And if you're, you know, uh, um, Jason and I had this conversation when we were in Steubenville. I was, <laughs> I, was like, I, I was just about to say a minute ago. Was, that's why I was laughing to myself. Conversation. This one of those like, times you guys were yelling at each other. Well, it's the Mark yeah. Twain quote, right? Like it's Mark Twain says, itself. "History doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme." And Jason's like, "So it repeats itself." I'm like, "No, it's not. It's not an exact repeat." Jason. It repeats itself. I'm like Jason. All I know, stop it. All I know is who froze the bacon the night before. Well, I don't know, Mark. I guess it sounds like a Mark thing. <laughs> oh, was it Jason? <laughs> yes. Dude, I was unloading. For some reason, I just tossed it in the freezer. I don't know why. But either right. way, either way, Rob. I remember me and Anthony are literally yelling at each other, and Rob goes, "You know, y'all agree on the y- y'all are arguing the same point, the same thing." Um, I don't think so, Pam. I think Gaius is the centurion who comes to Jesus and says, uh, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my servant shall be healed. I'm a man who has soldiers under me, and if I come in. If that would end up being Atticus, maybe. Because Atticus doesn't seem near as um certain uh, as Gaius, but, he, but he's, he's still intrigued. Curious, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And he, he's been sent there to to deal kind of with the zealots who uh, attempted assassination uh, on Caesar or something. I, I didn't see Caesar. Yeah, and Gaius, and one of the defining scenes for me with Gaius is after Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, how he's just sitting on his horse, just 
taken aback. He's just like, he hears this message and you can just tell that it's just churning in his head that this Jesus Listen, is right. If, if you, when was the last time you guys actually read Matthew five and read the sermon on the Mount? Uh, it's been a while, know, right? Like, you know, a year or two, maybe. I don't know. Listen, I don't care how, how many times you've read it. Like we should live in the gospels. Like we really should live in the, Hey Ange, um, like we need to live in the gospels. And the thing is, every time I read the sermon on the Mount, it strikes me something different in it. And it really is the sermon of sermons. It's the greatest sermon ever preached. And the thing is, when you read the sermon on the Mount, if it's like you go into, especially if it's your first time, you go in to reading the gospels and you want to read about Jesus. And when you read the sermon on the Mount, you read your own soul. It's like you get a, a, an illumination of conscience when you read the sermon on the Mount. It really does move you. And even if you've read it a bunch of times, every time I read that Sermon on the Mount, I mean, it's something that as your children are getting older, we should be reading it to our children once a year to twice a year because it will shape them and how they and how they handle situations and even their interactions with each other. And uh, I've, I agree with this 100%. Like I was really let that I think they dropped the ball big on i mean it is it is uh I, but do you it's, think they it's just a, uh they didn't want to screw it up so they just kind of brushed it under the well, no the thing is the i don't remember how they handled the last episode of last season i just saw this season how they handled it and it just seemed like they brushed over it with like quick scenes and stuff and right. it's it wasn't serious enough like and that's basically my biggest criticism of how they handle Jesus throughout the whole series. He, he doesn't speak with enough authority. Like it's almost like he's unsure of himself. Like Jason said, like at points, he's not like, it's like, he doesn't, it's like, he's not capable of reading Eden's soul at some points. It's like, I, I don't know. Like it's very difficult to, to get Jesus. I understand that. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to grant that, that leeway because we're talking about, you know, we, ha we only have these, five uh, four accounts in the gospels and it's not an it's not all of us kind of have a our uh, own and i'll say in version. dallas's defense portraying jesus is almost a no-win situation right that's well, that's yeah. what i'm saying yeah it's it's and a lot of us go in with preconceived notions and we're not 100 percent. so i'm you know i think it's a very difficult thing i think jonathan rumi does a good job like he does is a couple of parts where i you know it's not always his fault what the writing is and stuff the way he uh no, Jim Caviezel, but it's also a uh, part of that, Jeff, is because you're seeing it in Hebrew with subtitles. And there's Fair something man. very powerful about that. Mm -hmm. Like when you're reading the subtitles and Jim Caviezel speaking in a different language, it's almost like you're. And, and they did. They, he didn't speak that much, right? Because it's the passion narrative. Yeah. I, that, so that's so, pretty. So safe. even when you watch the Padre Pio movie, the, the, the Miracle Man. I tell everybody, don't watch that movie with dubbed in English. Watch it in the original Italian reading the subtitles, because even if there is like a corny part in the acting or something, you're reading the subtitles, you're not catching it. It doesn't come off. <laughs> like that movie, when you watch that movie in Italian with the subtitles, it is such a powerful movie. I feel like you're trying to hide bad acting from us. I don't know. Have you ever seen that movie? <laughs> no, I Miracle Man? I, I mean, no. I... I hate that you guys don't take my book recommend my movie recommendations. I take your book recommendations. I've pretty much read every That's book true. you, you recommended. You did. You do. 
you do. I will give you that. We we still got to get Tom Holland. I don't understand you, your guys's obsession with Tom Holland. Oh, I'm listening to his his rest is history podcast. I think the rest is history is terrible. I've never. I didn't even know he had a podcast, but I love that book. The podcast is bad, and he doesn't. Dude, I went and I tried to listen to the one on the. Everybody was telling me it's great. I saw while I was going skiing, I listened to the one on the French Revolution. Be careful. We're trying to get an episode with Tom. Be careful. (laughs) But the thing I loved Dominion. Loved it, especially Loved it. the first couple of chapters alone are worth the, the, the purchase price of that book. But the rest is history podcast. I'm not, I mean, I listened to two episodes and like everybody, I mean, I mean, I mean you know, you know, I mean, Tom Holland, I mean, we know he's uh, uh Anglican, right? So you kind of knew once you got to the Reformation, there was going to be some bias, but I think overall, the book he left out a lot of bias he, and he was pretty he fair at that. all. He was pretty fair to I, the Catholic Church. No, I think he's Episcopalian I don't, or Anglican, I guess, since he's old. He's Anglican. Yeah. Is he? Uh, yeah, he's Anglican. From his podcast, I would think he's just a liberal atheist. But well, I, no, no, no. Well, that's the thing. He's not, no, no, no. He's, he was raised Anglican. He left the church. When okay. he wrote the book Dominion, he realized how yes. he, 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 he had the impression that modern Western civilization was formed by Greek and Roman culture. And when he wrote Dominion, what he realized was every single thing he ever thought about Christianity was wrong and that every single thing we do in our lives is entrenched by Christianity, the language we use, the idea of democracy. Like people have this impression that democracy existed in ancient Greece. Their democracy was nothing like the modern concept well, well, of democracy. Well, well, their democracy was democracy. Yeah, well, in this idea that that human dignity has always been an, an inherent belief in people. It hasn't. You no, know, the yeah. Romans and Greeks definitely didn't believe in it. And the Romans and Greeks thought if, the, if you were less fortunate, you owed the the wealthy, you owed the elites, you owed them your loyalty and your servitude and whatnot. Where Jesus comes along, Christianity comes along and says, no, you need to help the less fortunate. And it kind of, you know. Yeah, it, Jason's 100% right. The, the, the BLM movement, it's a Christian movement, just a warping of it, right? Yeah. Like the idea that we should stand up for the downtrodden and those who are suffering. Like that's such a Christian idea that didn't exist anywhere in the history of the world before Christianity. Well, well um, and, and he talks about it later about how some of these movements we have, the, they're rooted in Christian tradition. They're just very perverted and distorted. And uh, I mean, I even thought he, oops, sorry, I even thought he did pretty good. <laughs> With the Enlightenment period, right? Because he talks about how after the Enlightenment period, all of a sudden people are trying to pretend that Christianity had nothing to do with the values that Western society held. It's just not true. So, Caitlin, the book's called Dominion, and Tom Holland is a historian, and he writes about the rise of Christianity. And what he does is he takes you to see what Rome was like before Christianity and it flips you out. Like you can't believe how different Roman culture was. The, the introduction to this book where he describes crucifixion will floor you. I I think I might Rob, we won't monetize it because it'll be copyrighted, but I think I want to read just the introduction of that book. If we offer commentary on it, that's fair use and we can monetize it. Okay. Here's here's the thing that blew me away, and and I had never really considered or thought about it during that first chapter was when he said crucifixion was so looked down upon, <laughs> was so looked down upon that there's only there's only 
one time in history where crucifixion has actually been written about and detailed. And guess guess what that account is? The story of Jesus. Yeah. Even though that we know crucifixion happened, there's not a there's not a lot of historical evidence as far as writing. Yeah, for yeah, because they were so ashamed of it because it was so horrific, and the Romans blamed it on this uh, the. Uh, Babylonians, the Babylonians blamed it on the, the Persians. Like everybody was like, ah, we didn't come up with it. It's just great to do if you want to really get people in line, you know? And like I said, so. you know, him being saying that he was Anglican in the book in the beginning, I kind of was thinking that he would, um, when he got to the Reformation hurt. and stuff like that, I figured he might kind of start swaying. And I, he was a lot more friendly to Martin Luther than than I agree with. Yeah. But overall, I think he did a pretty fair and treated the Catholic Church really well, especially in those. Yeah. Especially the well, saints. He goes over, into right, some yeah. of the saints' accounts that are amazing, yes. yeah. right? Jason, like some of the saints' accounts, he's just like, like you can't believe. Like I never heard some of those writings before. I can't recommend just, the book enough. If, if anybody yeah, has, I read. loved it. I absolutely loved it. I, I, I loved it so much. I told told Jason to read it. Jason read it, and we've both been trying to like nudge Tom Holland to come on here, but. He's a very busy man, so uh Yeah, that's no, so Don, that's what, that's where I did too, Don. Once I caught once I got to the Reformation, I, I put it down and then I I read a little bit after. But once you get to the Reformation, the book kind of does take a little bit of a turn. But like up I said, to I, that point I, it's a phenomenal. I really enjoyed his take on the Enlightenment overall because like I said, he he even acknowledges that, hey, you know, we're trying to pretend that the Enlightenment came along and lifted man uh man up out of the dark ages. And he's basically like, No, that's not what happened at all. Yeah. So. And the idea that there were dark ages and, and one of the funniest things is when Protestants say, Of course they were the dark ages, because the Catholic Church was keeping the Bible from the people. Like this is so enraging. And it's just like that chosen post they put on Instagram. Instagram the other day where they're like, um, uh, do you know, church can save you. Do you know who and when started translating the Bible into English for the first time? Jerome, right? No. Oh, no, into, no. into English. Oh, I thought you meant, uh, into, 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 uh, into Latin. It was Jerome, right? Right. Into English was, was St. Bede, the venerable, that's in right. a, uh, AD 800. So he does mention you know, that in, in 700 years before Protestantism ever existed. Yeah. yeah. And what was that the Dewey Reims translation or no? No, no. The no, Dewey no, Reims no. didn't start for 700 years. Um, he, when did I don't we think get the Dewey Reims? Uh, it was, I think, finished. Um, you had the Old Testament done by, in Dewey in the late 1500s and then the new testament was finished in 1610. Oh, so it was right around when they were when Luther was translating it, we wanted to get it, our own catholic. Edition. It was finished a year or two before the King James. So it the the first real English Bible is still catholic. It's not the King James. So Don, you have the audiobook, right? I have the audiobook as well. So maybe we could do cuz Tom Holland reads the introduction and he's it's it's his own book and he reads it so well. So maybe I mean, I may even reach out to Tom Holland and ask his permission if we could play little clips of it and then talk over it, because it, it's the most amazing introduction. I, I mean, of any book I've ever read. Mm -hmm. It really like I listened to it with my wife and kids on, on a on a road trip. And it was just unbelievable. well, if you if, if you are familiar with the New Testament, the first couple chapters or so, give or take, will just be a rehashing of what you probably already know. But after that. Yeah, I mean it's 
It's pretty good. I, I can't imagine he does a better job than Tim Flanders and City of God versus City of Man. The way it's written, Tom Holland's a phenomenal writer, and it's a different book. It's a very different book. It's a very different book. I love Tim Flanders' book. It's just a very <laughs> different book. So, all right, come on. We, we'll never get through this if we don't go. So, um, scene eight, Jairus and Joseph search for Jesus in Andrew's house. So now they they find Judas there, and then this is where everything starts to set into motion. So Jesus sits with a few of the apostles at Simon's house, and we get the wineskin parable, which we spoke about already. Now Jairus barges in and begs him to heal his daughter. Now this scene I really thought was beautiful. Like Jairus, the guy who's playing Jairus is a, is a really good actor when it comes to uh, showing how deeply emotional he is about this experience like he's he's really really emotional it, it, i thought it was well done um just the way he's uh I, I guess just putting his life in his daughter's life in jesus's hands and jesus says to him you know you you've never even met me and you have this much faith take me to your daughter yes. i would say starting at that part through the second to last scene, the episode's okay, yeah. Pretty good. Yeah, so this is, and now this is where now G, now Jesus is traveling to see Jairus's daughter and the crowds are pressing in on him and we see Veronica's healing. So what what you have here is the the story of the healing of the woman, right? And uh, hang on one sec, I just want to pull it up because Mark 525, right? I think that's what it is. There was a woman afflicted with hemorrhages for 12 years. She had suffered greatly at the hands of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet she was not helped, but only grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. She said, if I but touch his clothes, I shall be cured. This is such a weird thing because they're actually telling you what she says in her head. Right? So it's like, we get this little clip in the, in the gospel, but they must have had interactions with this woman because... I mean, how does how does Mark know what she said in her head? So she heard about Jesus came up behind him. I guess, but I I, <laughs> I think there was more to just inspiration. It's yeah. so she said, "If I but touch his clothes, I shall be cured." Immediately, her blood, her flow of blood, dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Jesus, aware at once that power had gone out of him, turned around into the crowd and asked, "Who has touched my clothes?" But his disciples said to him. You see, the crowd is pressing upon you, and yet you ask, who touched me? Yep. And he looked around to see what who had done it. The woman, realizing what had happened to her, approached in fear and trembling. She fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be cured of your affliction. That is that is pretty accurate to what the show showed. Mm-hmm. Right? This is a very accurate depiction of how the show handled it. And... While she, while he was still speaking, people from the synagogue official's house arrived and said, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher any longer? The official said, uh, uh, disregarding the message that was reported, Jesus said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid, just have faith. He did not allow anyone to accompany him in, inside except for Peter, James, and hang John. On, the hang brother. on, don't, don't skip. Don't skip the whole Veronica scene. That was it. He already read it. Yeah, you read it, but we didn't talk about it. Or did you want to oh, get the okay. whole thing? Oh, I, I was going to read, but no, we can, we can talk about the Veronica scene. No, well, I don't, I'll go back to this. What I was trying to point out is that I, when I saw that Jesus tells Peter, James, and John to come with him, I, I forgot that was that's how it went in the story. So I had to go back and read it. And I was like, oh, wow, that actually was. You're talking about another, when the crowd was pushing up on him? 
Yeah. So like, well, right after that, right after that. Right. So this, they always, all three synoptics put the story of Veronica bleeding and Jairus's daughter in together. And that's why I said earlier, it's, it's kind of one of these scenarios where she's bleeding for 12 years, but she's an older woman and the child Jairus's daughter is 12 years old. And it almost reminds me of the parable of the uh, prodigal son where there's an older and a younger going there. And I think there's probably some typology about the Jews and the new church in there somewhere, but I'd have to do a little research on that. Um, What did you think of the healing of Veronica, Jason? Well, like I mentioned in the very beginning, like I, um, I don't know why I've always been really touched by that story for whatever reason, just because I guess of what she says, all I got to do is touch the hem of his garment and I will be healed. That type of faith. And uh, I, when when I saw it last night, just her, just her anxiety and her working herself up, just telling herself, I just need to do that. All I got to do is touch it. And just her in desperation going in, because remember last episode, Eden had asked her, well, how do you live if, or, or, you know, how do you keep hope if all the doctors can't heal you and you've spent all your money trying to get doctors to heal you and they can't. And she says, well, I haven't lost all hope. And she still had hope in Jesus, and you see it evident in here. And if anybody knows, it, you can ask anybody that knows me. I don't. I rarely tear up on anything, like I, you know, funeral stuff like that. I just, just not who I am, I guess. But that scene really brought some tears to my eyes last night. Like just, just the desperation and faith in Veronica, and the anxiety of waiting that. for her to get to touch him. Right? Like I was like holding my breath, like just, 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 just touch him, just jump out and touch him. You know? And I and, they did a great I, job and, of building. The and I agree with post millennial here. I, I I think the Veronica scene hit way harder than the Jairus scene. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it was amazing because then after Jesus you know, in the show is talking to her. She says she has no father. You know, her family has disowned her. She's been ritually unpure for all these years. So she can't participate in, in, you know, in in the rituals of her people and of her faith. She's an outcast. And then Jesus, you know, Jesus cures her. And now her life is completely is going to completely change because of her faith in Jesus. And that really speaks to us and, and to, and to people that are not followers of Christ about how much Jesus can really turn your life around. I don't know. Yeah. The scene, the, the scene was very, uh, uh, hit, hit on my it. emotions. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So scene, and I think, go ahead, Rob. You know what the scene shows veneration of first class relics. <laughs> I love that you always pick up on things like that. <laughs> but uh, I want to say something. I want to uh, real quick. Post millennial. Um, we're going to read it live on air. I was gonna um, say, yeah, I'm sure. going to read it, so you'll see that. But also, I want to salute you for for watching the show because I know you have such a hard time with it. Like I, I know you do. Like I, you know, I, I, I see the comments that you leave. I know you have a hard time with it, but you're still sticking through it. And it's like, um, I. <sighs> I, I don't know. I think that's, a, I think it's a noble thing you're doing. Like it is, a, it is a rough one to, to, some of it is very tough to get through for us as Catholics, but I'm glad that you're sticking through it. You know, you know, what's um, you know, it's also cool. really interesting about the, the Veronica scene is that I don't know if there's another uh, account off the top of my head, but in all the miracles and healings and stuff like that, that Jesus did, he's usually touching people, right? He's going up to them and touching rubbing, them and doing that yet here things on their eyes. And- yeah. Here, Veronica touches the hem of his garment, and Jesus says, "The power left me." Almost like, I, I, I don't know, like, like, 
Of course, now, of course, of course, he knew what was going to happen on one instance, but the other, you know, he rhetorically asked, "Who touched me?" Well, who that's what I was going to say, Jason. Just, right, so Jason. The thing is, uh, maybe we are like you know how we're saying like. Like we assume Jesus knew everybody's name because he could like, but maybe he doesn't. Like you do see these scenes in scripture where Jesus says, who he touched does. me? So you think why, then why ask? Because I think it was a, a, a teaching opportunity because you, mm-hmm. you can teach a lot of times through rhetorical questions, right? So I think Jesus is saying, you think that's he, what that was? He, he has all these people pushing up on him. Even Peter says, what do you mean he touched you? And he goes, everybody's pressing up against you. Everybody's talking about who touched you. And yet you ask who touched me? And Jesus is making a, you know, using this as an opportunity to stop the crowds and say, basically, ultimately say this woman's faith has healed her. Right. He, want, yeah. he wants her to admit that it was her faith. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of like Father Mike Schmidt's on an Easter homily, he said one time when Jesus was carrying his cross and you had all these people hitting him and spitting on him and mocking him, we tend to a lot of times think these are just random people and they are to us. But to Jesus, Jesus knew every single person that day more intimately than they knew themselves. He every I, single person that day. Exactly. I, th- I think in the first season they showed that, or it might've been the second season when he heals the paralytic at, at the uh, pool of Bethesda that it, they show that Jesus goes out of his way. They, they're like, why are we going here? He goes, I have to go here. And he goes there mm-hmm. just to heal him. And he, it's almost like that this man was paralyzed from when he was a child the whole time just to show the glory of God. Jesus knew I have to go here and I have to heal this man. And that's going to wind up getting uh, Z, the, uh, the, the, um, uh, the zealot, the zealot to convert because that's his brother. Rob, you should catch season two, man. Like, in your spare time, I know it's rough, but <laughs> <laughs> you're missing so, a couple so, of these. I, I mean, do, do y'all think there's any more significance to this story about why all all she had to do was touch? I mean, I know it's about faith, but you know, again, it almost seems unwilling that Jesus, if you read the account on face value, that Jesus' power just left without his consent. Now, I don't think it went without his consent. No, but of will, right? So, I, I mean, do y'all think there's deeper meaning to that or is no, it just I think, purely I think a, right. a faith, I think a faith right. healer type story yeah. but i think and look it's uh, well this also gets it i'm sorry rob but it, this also gets into a lot of people uh thinking that uh if you just have enough faith jesus will heal you but i think it, it, these are very specific things in context of while the bridegroom is there right because that uh no you you finish yeah because so like jesus like some people are healed like that does happen but that that it's as catholics we we view suffering totally different than uh protestants do right so it's like sometimes you like the healing is not the point sometimes the suffering is the point you know so well we see that in in little james right yeah i was gonna say that it um by saying that like the power went out of out for me almost in a sense where it was not uh, willful, you know, I think what it kind of shows is that when you go to, to Jesus and to God um, in prayer, um, but when you're in a state of grace, for instance, and you go to God in prayer, that you are in a sense owed something injustice, right? Um, because God, of course, is perfectly just, and, and, and justice is when you're given something that's due. And when you are in a state of grace, 
and you do have faith in God, you are do something in return. That doesn't mean what you think you want is what you know is due to you is or is what will be given yeah. to you. God gives you what you um, need, not what you want. Right, right. But I think it's showing that God, from from his very nature, is being perfectly just. It's not necessarily against his will, of course, but it's his will that that when you go to him in faith, you you know it's hard to explain but but i think that's what jesus is showing by by that by saying that is that she came to him in faith um she obviously was a righteous woman right at least from what we we know or as saw in the show anyways um that she was do something and that in this case it was her, her physical healing so yeah and the and the physical the healings are always so like even when you look at jesus healing the paralytic the, the first thing he says is your sins are forgiven Everybody's like, what do you mean? Your sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive. Okay, well, what is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or pick up your mat and go home. Because the physical healing is always secondary. The, mm-hmm. the, the, so I had this conversation with, um, I don't want to say who. <laughs> because they were, uh, well, we may, we, um, I might be doing a show Friday with this person. <laughs> so, oh, okay. But they were, they were talking about the Novus Ordo and whether <laughs> the val- sacraments are valid. And I, and I brought up that um, the, Eucharistic miracles, like that, there are still Eucharistic miracles in both forms of the mass. And the thing is, they're they're still going on in the Novus Ordo, right? And he's like, "Yeah, but that's because of lack of belief." I said, "I don't care. That still means the, you don't the, see Eucharistic miracles in an invalid Anglican mass." Exactly. That's the point, right? So it's still a valid. There would be post. no need like, for Eucharistic miracles without a lack of belief. So that that is correct. But there yeah. couldn't be those miracles without validity. Without the validity of the sacrament. So it's like, th- that's what makes me, uh, you know, when, when I hear people talk about the Sedevicontis thing and whether the ordinations are valid and the sacraments are valid, I'm sorry. I don't care what your belief is about Francis. What I know is the val- the sacraments are valid, that the church still has the authority to consecrate hosts and all the sacraments are still valid. So um, let's see. Interesting. Uh, from Pope Francis, in Hebrew religious tradition, wearing such a garment was a symbol of being clothed with the divine law, the source of blessing. The woman's gesture of touching his garment is thus a form of quiet prayer and a sign of hope. Hmm. And a sign of faith, too. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. That's good. Um, okay, so let's let's read the rest of the, the gospel account, right? So um, so now he said to, said to her daughter, uh, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be cured of your affliction. While he was still speaking, people from the synagogue official's house arrived and said, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher any longer? Disregarding the message that was reported, Jesus said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid. Just have faith. So this actually happens in the show. Jesus says, do not be afraid. Just have faith. And I thought it was corny when he said it. I was like, that's not, there's no way that's what Jesus said. Like, it didn't sound like he would have said, do not be afraid, just have faith. It sounded very Protestant to me. And then I went back and read it, and I'm like, okay, no, no, no. That's literally word for word what he said. <laughs> he did not allow anyone to accompany him inside except for Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they had arrived at the house of the synagogue official, he caught sight of a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. This happens in the show. So he went in and said to them, why this commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they ridiculed him. Then he put them all out. 
He took along the child's father and mother and those who were with him and entered the room where the child was. He took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. I wish they would have quoted that for me. I was about to say, I was waiting for the Talitha Kum to come up. It was really no upset reason me not to. Well, right? they don't say like, it in the other synoptics. That's the thing. But still, that we and have the, an account of actual words of Christ. Right. And, and they, they follow the story up. of Mark. But, but when you read the other synoptics, they don't say it. So Is I, Little I, Lamb I, in the Mormon Bible? No, none of them, the none of them say Little Lamb. Lamb. Oh, I, know. I know it's not in that. <laughs> the girl, a child of 12, arose immediately and walked around. At that, they were utterly astounded. He gave strict orders that no one should know this and that she should be given something to eat. They handled this perfectly in the show. Perfectly. No. Notice Strictly, again, do how, not tell anyone. Yeah, how uh, the act of eating is connected with healing? I yeah, I always, I always, like, no, well, I always why, wondered. Why say give her something to eat? I always wondered that about this story. It's so significant because all three synoptics have it. All three of them say, as soon as he tells her to rise, they say he says, "Give her something to eat." And it's a really, uh, like a, a really strange thing there, right? It's like he tells them, give her something to eat. And uh, what's, what are you laughing at, Jason? Just my stupid brain. I was, I was going to make, Let's hear it. I was gonna Let's make hear a comment. It. Maybe, maybe dying eats up a lot of energy. Jason's <laughs> thinking, like, when I wake up in the morning, I'm always hungry. I'm, I need to break my fast. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, th- was that was that this episode where he explains? Oh, that was so yeah. annoying. Oh, He's like, I'm going to break my yeah. fast. Yeah. You've been on a, a long fast, fast. eight hours. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like, oh, he just invented the word breakfast, guys. <laughs> Is that what they were going for? He just invented the word know. breakfast. I mean, that's really what they were I don't going know. for. <laughs> that's really what they were going. For. It's actually like one of the one of the great scenes of um, the Passion is when Jesus is building the table for the rich yeah. person. Yes. And Mary comes in and she's like, and she like, she goes, that's nah, never going to catch on. That's actually a really, but there's actually a scene there's, in the, I'm sorry. Go it, ahead. it just shows the difference in like, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I can explain it, but like in, 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 in seriousness, in like, uh, in like, a like it, that was endearing, it right? It, was it wasn't cheesy in the passion. Funny, yeah. Right. It, but it, in the chosen, it, it's all the, the humor is, Cheesy and cringy. All right. I, don't... I mean, come on, cut them some slack, Rob. You're always on that case. Listen, I... is it, that scene from <laughs> the Passion, though. This what's what's really phenomenal about that is before Mary goes up like this, Jesus hops up on the table and he sits like that to te- to check for the strength of the table, right? And then he hops down and Mary sits and she goes, "This will never catch on," and it's like him on the altar. Him on the altar, she goes, this will never catch on. It's like, no, no, no. He's going to be on the table. Like, he actually pops up on the table to check the strength of the table. And and it's like, let Rob Dallas owes Rob some money. Yeah, it's, it's just a really, if you really watch The Passion, that flashback scene is really beautiful because Jesus hops up on the table like he's the lamb on the altar. And Mary comes over and she goes, this will never catch on. She's talking about the table, but it really is symbolic. Maybe, maybe she was saying the Cranmer tables would never catch on. <laughs> no, she no, was no, right. Altar. This thing's not going to work. We don't want picnic tables in the churches. Did you guys see this? 
Yeah, so I uh, died at age 15 of heat stroke right after receiving Jesus in the Eucharist at Mass. Jesus resurrected me from the inside a few minutes later. There is still a witness to this alive. Wow. Uh, Pam, how old are you? Listen, I love love hearing the rules on this show. I love hearing miracle, uh, miraculous stories, right? Like, I I would like to get Roy Schumann on. Uh, Somebody in the Telegram chat was asking if we would, I think it was Katie. Um, Yeah, Katie was asking if we we would get Roy Schumann on. Rob has never heard Roy Schumann's conversion. And the thing is, his conversion story was told so many times, but it was also told 20 years ago. And the thing is, there's a lot of new people who have never heard Roy Schumann's conversion story. He was a Jewish guy who started having visions of the Blessed Mother. Now, was he um, was he a faithful Jew? Was he an atheist Jew? He was an was atheist an and had this weird encounter with God, and he knew God existed. And he he was he was like a an, a more of a nominal Jew, and then had this weird encounter with God. And he's like, okay, God, if you exist, I'll become whatever you want. If you're God, if you're if you're Buddha, I'll become Buddhist. If you're, you know, uh, Hindu, I'll become Hindu. As long as you're not Jesus, and I have to become Christian. Then he has this vision of Mary. So now he doesn't know the difference in Catholic and Protestant, and he starts going to Protestant churches, and he tells them about this vision he had, and they and he hears the way they talk about the blessed mother. And he goes, nah, this ain't right. This ain't right. So he went immediately to the Catholic church because of these visions he had of Mary. And it was, it's one of the most beautiful stories. And I just, you know, I hope I didn't ruin it for anybody because when he tells it, it's really, um, you know what this comment reminds me of? <laughs> it reminds me of going to, uh, a Steubenville conference mass and almost dying of heat stroke in the gym with 2000 other teenagers. That would have been life. Um, Oh wait, Jeff's not in our Telegram. Uh, no, he's he was. He's gonna he's joining back up. Okay. Butterfly. Um, if we get him on post millennial, I will ask him that. Well. I'll ask him that because he's very big on the conversion of the Jews. I know that. So, um, uh, okay. So then, in the last scene of the show, the, I'm sorry. Since you just mentioned the Telegram, uh, for anyone that wants to, there's a link in the description of the video to our Telegram chat where we just hang out and chat and make jokes so anyone's welcome in there it's mainly a a roast anthony chat i mean 90 percent of it is just where's anthony what's he doing i mean mean, margo starts most of the trouble in there she's absolutely (laughs) um yeah it's it's an it's an amazing story so he said he would come on i haven't actually reached out to him yet we just got so many things going on right now um roy did say he would come on Oh yeah, Katie reached out to him and asked him on his chat, and he said absolutely. She she gave me his contact info, so all I have to do is reach out to him. Oh wow, uh, Pam awesome. can't can't find the link. She said, <laughs> "I went to Steubenville conferences many times as a youth minister. My favorite part about the conf oh, sorry, uh, my favorite part about the conference was the bus ride back home." <laughs> uh. Is that shot, Don? Don, Don's always throwing little digs at me. Today, he's making fun of the way I spelled Rubik's Cube because I spelled it Rubrics. Don always makes fun of me. (laughs) Don kind of hurts my feelings a lot of times. Oh, he's vicious. Dude, he's a vicious. He's quick and vicious. Usually, older people aren't that quick. Um, Caitlin, Rob and I were just talking about doing a show on the rosary and total consecration. Yeah, um, we may we may do a show on 
on total consecration soon. Uh, I think Roy thinks the end times are imminent, and he was looking into the second Lucy third secret thing. We'll have to ask him about that. I, I think they're pretty imminent too, guys. <laughs> I gotta be honest. I don't think that's a crazy, I don't think that's a preposterous thesis these days. Like, I, I don't think, uh, yes, you are mean, but we love you, Don. Don't worry. <laughs> don't ever change. If you think we're telling you to stop being mean, don't. Um, the, uh, the thing is, I don't, look, I don't know if it's the end times. I think it's the end of something. Like, I mean, we're gonna see. It's eventually gonna obviously come. But it, I, I just always revert back to that almost every Christian since the first century always thinks they're in the, you know, it's yeah, that is true too. Cool. Every I think I think a lot of that has to do with every generation is uncomfortable with the world going on without them. you know what so it has to do with sec- secretly want to be the last generation. History repeats itself. We definitely are in the eschatos, right? I mean, we are, but we have been since. Since the uh, since the resurrection, since Pentecost, since the ascension, yeah. Since Even, the ascension event, yeah eventually, the one day, a generation is actually going to be correct in thinking that they're the well, look, last one. Saying we're in the end times doesn't mean you'll see it in your life. That could be yeah, your kids yeah. see it, right? Like it's just, I just right, think yeah. we're coming up to the end of something. Like I and I don't know, I don't know how much longer this Western culture can sustain itself. That's all. Um. Every group thinks they're in the end times. Ooh. <laughs> Every group thinks they're in the end times. Every group is right in that we are always closer. Eh? That's true. And argue with that. Um, you guys have any questions? Does anybody have any comments about the chosen that you want us to pop up on the screen? Oh, was that the last the, scene? The last scene is them going back to see Veronica and they all jump in the water like a bunch oh, of Okay, but the ending of that was oh yeah. Was... Oh, I might have turned it off. What was the ending? Eden is standing there on the beach watching them all swim and have fun, including you know Jesus and swimming and having fun. And you can tell she's just in pain, and it's, that's what James right. and I were talking about. You didn't see that? No, I must have because I saw that they. Oh, I saw there was like two minutes and left, it. and I, was, I might have just turned it Go off. Go back and watch it because it goes back to what me and Rob were talking about. Jesus is just oblivious or seems or in or insensitive. I think yeah. that he's not. I think that he's letting her go through this pain for something spectacular that's going to happen with her. And well, I think to be fair, sometimes God's, he's, not, uh, so, God. he's not doing anything because this didn't happen. <laughs> right. The question that's is, true, what are they trying to show? In, I, yeah. All right. Be, but let me ask that you. That is an interesting it, point, Anthony. I mean, you could be right about that because, yeah. In, I mean, your, in your own life, God are there times. When you're suffering, where you think God is not paying attention to you, where you think God is ignoring you, and it may seem that way, and then something like, look, you never see God. Yeah, but he wasn't physically in front of me, swimming in the ocean, having fun with the boys. I understand. I know what you're saying, but I think that I think that you a lot of times you can't see God's hand in things until. Well, later. and and and. <sighs> Uh, that's a good point because a lot of times when we're in trouble, God doesn't always help us in the way we think he should. Right. And that's why, you know, Garth Brooks had a, has a song, you know, unanswered prayers. And I actually hate that song ever since I was younger because people don't realize that no is an answer. Like you can ask God for something. And if you don't get the answer you you want, doesn't mean, Oh, well, God doesn't answer my prayers. No, God may have just said right. no or yeah. wait or I'll I'll answer this prayer when the time is right, or whatever the case may be. Well, the thing is, there was a time where I was away from the church, right? Um, 
and I, I would have thought God was inactive in my life, but really God was allowing me to go through certain things and allowing me to, to fall deeper because it's, it's the, 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 the more you've been forgiven, the greater the love first off, second off, I had to see my soul in a place that was horrible. Like I had to see my soul in hell and I, I was given something similar to a vision of myself in hell wasn't actual, like it wasn't like an apparition or a, you know, locution or anything being on this podcast with you. (laughs) You That is just mean. We are are actually very, Anthony, we are actually similar in that aspect too. Cause I'm not saying I had a vision, but I had a dream about hell one time when I was not living right in it. A dream has never felt more real. Yeah. Well, Jason, I, mine was so vivid that I went into panic mode and I Same woke here. up out of, yeah, I went into panic mode, woke up out of a dead sleep. My wife thought I was losing my mind. Yeah. So this was while I was, I mean, I, I had my original conversion. I was in the church. Then after Francis came in, I just got so run down from all of the nonsense in the church. And it was, it was just a very difficult time in my life. And then I had this insane, uh, I mean, like I said, it wasn't an apparition. It wasn't an interlocution. It was a dream, but I woke up out of a dead sleep in a panic. I had, I was in hell like forever. And I like, I, I mean, I, I had, I had never. I would have had me calling a priest for a confession right there. (laughs) Immediately. Right. Well, so what's weird about this time is that I went from that to then accidentally stumbling upon a, a video about Fatima. Now, my, my cousin, Eddie, who I talk about all the time in this podcast, which I'm going to catch crap for this, he had the same thing. We converted around the same time. We both fell away from the faith for the same period of time. I called him because he was we converted around the same time. And I was like, Eddie, I don't know, man. I tell him about the dream. I tell him about the video I saw on Fatima. He goes, Anthony, I just saw that same exact video. I'm going to confession right now. I'm like, holy cow, this is insane. You know, it's so weird. I call my brother Joey. My brother Joey tells me he just watched the same exact video on. It wasn't of a new video. It was a video 10, 15 years old. All three of us just happened to watch the same Fatima video. All three of us went to confession the same week. All three of us came back to the church within the same week. And all of us started going to the traditional mass that Advent. It was just a very beautiful time to see like my sibling, my cousin, and my sister within a few weeks also came back to the church. It was, it was a really beautiful time. This is probably about, I guess it was right around McCarrick. So what was that? 2017? 18. 2018 summer of shame. Summer of shame. Like like, mine was similar. I mean, this was before I was Catholic or even in the process of converting to Catholicism. But yeah, I mean, like I've woken up from dreams before where you feel like you're falling, your heart's racing, but this, this was different. Like I woke up, and it was like I could feel like I could literally feel the fires of hell. Like like I felt very hot. My I had a lot of anxiety. I was actually pretty fearful, pretty scared when I woke up. Um, in a panic like you. And I just remember from the dream, it was like it, basically it said, if you don't, if you don't change, this is where you're gonna end up. And it scared scared me to death. Like I said, I've never had a dream feel so real as that one. And I don't know. I mean <laughs> can I ask you guys if I'm wrong on this? Because this is my understanding yeah. of hell is that <laughs> hell hell is a mercy. Okay. So 
Like, you know how everybody's always saying God sends people to hell or God doesn't send people to hell. We send ourselves to hell. Here's how I view hell. And I, and I could be off on this and I don't know if this is Catholic dogma or what. God is a consuming fire, right? Mm-hmm. He's a consuming fire. We know that from scripture. Paul talks about it. God is a consuming fire and we go to purgatory, you know, the, the, uh, all, all that is made of, you know, of rubbish is going to burn away. And all that will stand is the gold, right? The gold and precious metals. If a, if a soul is in mortal sin, when they die, if God's this consuming fire, hell is actually a mercy from God where God keeps the soul away from him because to be in God's presence would be unbearable for that soul. So it's actually a mercy of God to not have that soul be in his presence because it would be more painful to force that person into heaven. I mean, that's always how I viewed hell. It's not about, it's actually a mercy from God that he's not putting you there as to damn you. He's putting you there because to keep you in his presence would be infinitely more painful. So he's, he's actually uh, like hell is the absence of God. I mean, I could be wrong about that. And if I'm wrong, please, guys, don't jump down my throat. That is just always how my conception of hell seemed to be. And I'm going to check on that. If anybody, fathers in the chat still, please let me know. I, I would. I, I don't know if I'm off on that, but I really do see hell as a mercy from God, not, not the way uh, we, we all kind of think God damns somebody or we send ourselves to hell. It's It's really because we couldn't bear to be in his presence. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know, I don't have anything to add to that. Uh, Rick Maybe, who? I mean, I mean, I don't know. Rick on Twitter. Uh, oh wow, yeah, that's right. So yeah, no. Does Rick anybody who? in the chat have any opinions on what I just said? I mean, I don't, so, I don't, I don't think I'm. So I, I know that. that I know that when a soul goes to hell, so <laughs> um. God is the source of the theological virtues, right? Hope, uh, faith, hope, and charity. Now, a soul in hell has, well, they, of course, believe in God, right? Whether they did beforehand or not, doesn't matter. They believe now. There's no atheist in hell, as the saying is. Right, right. They don't have faith in the sense that they entrust themselves to God, which is what faith is. They don't, of course, have hope of salvation because they've been damned. But more importantly, they also have no charity, no love. Like a soul in hell despises everyone, themselves, God, and every single person they ever thought they loved on earth. They despise everyone. And without without the theological virtues, they, they can't be united with, with God in heaven. I guess what would happen if they were somehow i i don't know well the I thing think, is think about what we're, think what we're saying we say the fires of hell right we say the fires of hell the thing is even in hell god is still it, it's more torture to be in hell away from god even still because god is this burning fire. so we call the cher- the cherubim of the burning ones because they're the ones closest to the throne of god seraphim. The seraphim, i'm sorry yeah. the seraphim are the closest to the throne of god they're the burning ones so it's like, but when you're in heaven, after you go through purgatory, all the all the corruption is burned away, and all that's left is the precious gold. So you're adapted to be in God's presence at this point. 
when you're in hell, you can never adapt to being in God's presence. So it still is torture. And it's like the never ending burning, even though like uh, somebody said, it's like freezing cold, but it's still a burning inferno, right? It's freezing cold, but inside is a burning inferno. Well, because of course, all, all of that is, there's no physical pain in hell until the resurrection of the body. So until the resurrection of the body, it is just the the separation of the soul from God's presence that is painful. After the resurrection of the body, it will be the worst physical torment ever possible, you know, you could ever conceive of. I, I still think that, like, I understand it sounds wrong to say that hell is a mercy, right? I understand that that concept sounds wrong, but just... The I, I idea would, of forcing I, a soul in mortal sin to be in the presence of God is would that, be such worse torture than to be in his absence. I, so, I mean, it, if when, when you say presence of God, if you mean the beatific vision, then I would say by God's very nature, uh, a damn soul could never, like, and I, I mean, like, by his nature, it could not. Uh, damsel could never have the beatific vision. Like God couldn't even force that because it'd be against the nature of God, which would be a paradox. It would be impossible. Um, so then the only other option besides hell would be probably um, annihilation, which we know God is capable of. He created about, he created all of us. He keeps us in existence. So he could, could choose to annihilate us. Of course, we know he doesn't. He sends us to hell. So I guess in that sense, our continued existence even if in hell would could be considered a mercy, yeah. And then, Damn, I, Robin and then and I, I, I got, I, I just got a question for you on this topic. Is that something that you've thought of yourself, or is that something that you've read? And I was just kind of curious of, of if, if anybody else kind of. I've like never heard it described that way. No, I've never heard it described that way. It's just when I when I read Paul say that God is a consuming fire, right? And it's look if it's theologically incorrect, I'm not putting this out as like dogma i'm asking like honestly i was about so, to say what father said here I, I don't know that you're necessarily wrong i don't know that you're right but i think there is leeway and 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 our conceptions of it just as long as you believe it exists of course oh 100 it exists i just think that to for god to force a soul into his presence if they're in like in that state i think it would be worse for that soul you know what i mean like the, the, so some so people who are universalists it's insane to think that because a person could never withstand that consuming fire that is God if they're not prepared for it. It's like all our lives, what we're doing is we're trying to get into the pattern of heaven in our lives, right? Because if you don't establish that pattern in your life, it will be alien to you when you get to the kingdom in, in the final time. Real quick, uh, Pam, Pam said something. Um, she said, because Rob and I discussed this the other day. Uh, since heaven and hell are outside of time, it might have been in the group chat with Jason too. Um, has the resurrection of the body already happened for the saints? So it is outside of time, right? So it's Hev like heaven when, is, yes. So when we pass, like purgatory, I know purgatory is in time, right? There's something temporal about purgatory, but but temporal on earth is not the same as temporal for God. God can make an instant, you know, eternity pass in an instant or a thousand years is but a moment to God. We read that in scripture. So is it possible that when we die, we all immediately after any kind of purgation we have to go through would all be at the end of time at the resurrection of the body? I guess 
theoretically, I mean, yes. I think more likely every moment. I don't know. Like this is just me. Yeah, we're just we're just listen. We're just. We're I would just, say it would make more please. sense to me that it would seem like all those moments, temporal moments, are you experience probably all at once, right? That, that's at least how I imagine it. Um, but the resurrection of the body does happen inside in of time at the in end time. of time, at the end of time. Um, before but if we are leaving, if our souls are leaving our bodies and we're leaving time, uh, it, like who's to say that we're not, I, I don't know. There's a possibility that you die. And I, you I would say like for us here, we're inside is. of time, right? So we can't say that the saints in heaven have their glorified bodies. Because no, they don't. We're, yes, we're still within time, right? Correct. Now, does that mean that to them that they ever that all the time between now and the end of time hasn't happened in like a moment to them, and that yeah. I don't know. But so no, wait, the resurrection of the body has so not happened. The way that prophecy unfolds in scripture, right? It's like, doesn't that mean God is not bound by time? So God has seen the whole story play out already, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, because it, because scripture tells us God knew from the foundations of the world, you know, how basically I can't I'm paraphrasing how he would save man and how everything would play out. You know, he was going to send his son. So he I mean, he's not bound by time. And me and Mark, I, I think I mentioned on here last week or the week before we did an episode on uh, the power of retroactive prayer. There's actually been studies that have shown or there at least one study that has shown that retroactive prayer is actually legit. Like the people that were prayed for fared a lot better than the ones that weren't prayed for. And this is 10, 15 years removed. That's pretty crazy. Right. So, I mean, so all I'm saying is if God is, I mean, if that's true, right. If, if retroactive prayer works, I sent you the link. Did you ever get it? I, I, I got it. I haven't had a chance to watch it, but I do want to watch it. The, um, but the idea is if God has seen the whole story play out, does that mean the resurrection has already happened and we're just like, it, it really brings into to play free will and predestiny. And I, you know, it is pretty I, I, wild. Not really. I mean, I, I don't think it does because, because you hear that all the time, especially when you talk to like premillennialists or Calvinists or whatever. I mean, it, just because God knows what's going to happen doesn't really take away our free will. It's just as infinite knowledge and knowing how we're going to react. Like he still asked, uh, Mary at the Annunciation, or the angel Gabriel asked Mary at the Annunciation, but God, she still she still gave her consent of free will, but yeah. God already knew from the beginning of the world that she was going to say yes, yeah, but she, she still, still chose made that it. decision. She's, it's almost yes. like it's almost like salvation history was waiting on Mary. Like God couldn't just stick Jesus in. Like there, there was, uh, you know, was 600 years where God is silent to the Jews, you know, and it's like where we have the Maccabees as Catholics, but the Protestants think there's this 400 yeah, year period years, of silence. Yeah. Right. But in reality, it's like, th- there's this, it's, it's like God couldn't come into the world until Mary comes and it's, and Mary had to choose that freely. You know, it's, I mean, God of course had to give her the grace to, 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 to be open to it. But what makes, what makes her yes. So powerful is that, when when the, when you, when we go over the the story of Mary, did you know? It's like yeah, Mary had to have a, a very good grasp of the suffering she would endure for her yes to be so meaningful. So um, Brandon and Post Millennial 
uh, integralists here kind of have intertwining points. So like Brandon says, God is outside of time, but we as creatures aren't, we can't be. And like um, post-millennial integralists is, you know, God's nature, the divine nature is uncreated. Of course it's, it's necessary. Um, but we're, we're created beings. We always will have a start, right? That's, that's one thing a lot of people don't understand. Our souls aren't, e- uh, they're not eternal. Souls don't exist before our birth. Correct. Or before right. our, so, so before we will have, birth. we will have life everlasting. But right. the thing we is, immortal, but not eternal. Th- right. We're immortal. We'll have life everlasting. But the thing is, when you, when you, when you receive the Eucharist, you are receiving eternal life because you're receiving Christ who is eternal, right? It's a, it's this really wild thing. Where you're Jesus, receiving the life of God. Yes. You're yeah, receiving yeah. eternal life in your soul because you are receiving Jesus into your soul. It's a, it's a really wild thing that like, if you really meditate on it, what, what, what Jesus is saying, like you can have eternal life. Now we are not, we are immortal. Jesus is eternal. But because we receive Jesus, we can receive eternal life into us. It's a pretty, you know, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am, you know, the, it's it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I, I, think I always it. like the saying where, where they say, you know, Jesus came down to earth to be, you know, through the incarnation so that he could bring us up to participate in in the divine life of, of the Trinity, right? So I think we should chop this end of the show up as a clip um, Margo's saying she's not smart enough for this part, but I like, I kind of think the, 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 the theological musings that we just had, like, I, th- I think it's interesting. And I, and if I'm wrong, I want to be corrected. That's the thing I submit to the church. Of course. Yeah. Um, you know, if I'm wrong on something, I'm, I'm not, I'm not asserting anything in, in my, in my proposition that I made tonight. I'm, I, I was trying to explain it in a way where that's kind of how I've, it's kind of just through, through through reading scripture and reading some of the saints and things like that. It's it's just kind of I almost feel like hell is a merciful act of God to not because I feel like it would be torture to put a soul into the into His presence if they are not prepared for it. Uh, I don't know if any of us are smart enough, but some of us are better at faking it than others. He's right about myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, listen, I'm trying to be humble about it. I don't, you know. Think- me, me, me and Mark, when we started our podcast, you know, we made it very clear in the beginning that we're just two lay people talking about our thoughts. And if like if we're ever wrong on something, we we urge people to defer to the magisterium of the Catholic Church, not not us, because we could be wrong. And I'm sure I have been wrong, not intentionally, but yeah, no, yeah, but that's I the mean, point, right? So if it's not intentional, like people, because I know how Catholics are, especially trans. <laughs> <laughs> but like we just to, enjoy it. It's nice sometimes just to get on and talk about these topics because we do that in person, right? With our friends, sometimes we'll get on. We'll just yeah. talk about random theological topics. It's just nice to do it with 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 other friends. Yeah, don't you're talking with a couple of friends. We're talking with the audience. We're seeing their perspective on it. It's like, dude, the thing is, it, the, the greatest. The, I'm sorry, and the and doing it like this is a good point. The audience actually, I've been educated through this past year and a half many times by comments that the people. Have have made in the comments or you on know, the video or live. I've learned a lot just from you know the what we should that, try some guy sometimes that guys, we're interacting with when we feel like we're about to go off on a tangent like this and could use some uh, more input from the audience. We should move this over to Telegram and actually have a video chat or audio chat with the audience. The problem is if we did that now, like it's ten o'clock already, and 
I have work tomorrow. So that ain't well, happening. I'm saying not now. I'm saying no, we yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Hour well, especially for like our hardcore f- uh, fans. Um, but uh, let's see. What is uh, Anthony? That's a cool idea. Jonathan Peugeot holds that view of the heaven and the resurrection. So I, I, I listen to a lot of Peugeot. I love Peugeot. Like, I, I don't know. I, I love hearing how the East sees things sometimes. I've never heard him say that. But I love hearing the mysticism of the East, even though they're wrong on certain things. They have a very similar understanding of holiness. Like the, the, the Orthodox understand holiness, okay, which is drastically different from anything Protestant I've ever seen, where they understand that uh, like theosis, their idea of theosis, where you become more and more like God. That's That's what becoming a saint is. But even this whole conversation, it's like, if I didn't meet you guys and we didn't have the people that we're talking to right now, like I don't have people in my regular life. I'm having these conversations with, right? Like, like where else are you going to have this conversation? <laughs> what is Jason doing? You think? I don't know because sometimes I say things and I'm waiting to hear a response from you guys and I get nothing. <laughs> oh, you don't like it. Oh, let me read a comment. Look, Kyle says Telegram is great until you're banned from it. Wow, yeah, you're right, Kyle. Like being banned from Telegram, which is unbannable, is amazing. <laughs> it really is. That really is quite an accomplishment, uh, Kyle. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't. I don't have many people I'm having these conversations with in my real life. I mean, I go to work. I'm a, I'm in construction. I'm working with a bunch of you're, you know. You're right. You're trying to you're trying to convince guys to eat dirty chicken wings off the street. <laughs> Yeah, he's really worried about this. <laughs> I'm going through a YouTube studio, and I, of course, Anthony doesn't tell me. You know, all of a sudden I'm looking. What? What is this uploaded? So wait a minute. Why Here's the reason this? I did that. Here's the reason I did that because that video on my other YouTube channel has a hundred thousand views. It's the most viral video I've ever put up, and I'm like, oh, maybe I'll get a maybe I'll get a little track. I got forty views. <laughs> like I should just take it. There. Did you use the same like description and tags? And no, because I wrote the original description was like dirty deep throat or something. It was pretty <laughs> gross. Yeah, <Good laughs> like, gracious. No wonder you got. <laughs> See, guys, we're not grifters. If we were grifters, we could have done that. Oh well, man. we're definitely not Catholic grifters. This anymore show went that. off the rails. I don't know how he did this. I don't know what we're doing. What do you mean? Like every, every show, you literally say we got off topic or went downhill. I don't know how that happened. Like at some point, you got to quit acting surprise. Um, wait. What are we, uh, Rob? Uh, I'm sorry. Hey, I, I made a great again. point. You ignored me. This really caught Thank you. <laughs> Hey, Rob, what did you just talk about uh, with Mac that you're catching up now? The uh, Catechism in a Year I started. Oh, did, uh, oh, how's that? How is it? So I Don't decided to start it yesterday, which is 10 days late for those. Well, of they're you only 10 days. minutes a day, right? You can listen to five in a day. 15 or 20. But I decided to do the Bible in a year as well uh, at the same time. So I got caught up to the Bible in a year yesterday, and I'm working on the Catechism in a year now. It's all right. I mean... Which one do you like better? So the Bible in the year he uses the RSV, which I'm okay with. Like it's not the Dewey Reams, but I, it's not bad. Um, in his, um, his commentaries for the most part okay. The commentary on Genesis one I wasn't a fan of personally, but um, other than that, mostly good. The Catechism, he, he's not offering a ton of commentary on it. It's more he's just reading the Catechism. 
the some of the introductory episodes. Now is he reading the ninety two catechism? I think he's reading or the, the current current version the of current. the ninety two. Yeah, current version. Um, so I know I'm gonna have a problem with certain parts when when he gets there. But uh, yeah, I tell you, first, you want to know who, you want to know who stands by the the current iteration is Mark. I know. Mark no, stands by the current iteration. We ought to have Mark and Rob duke it out on an episode. I, well, let me ask I, I you other than the death penalty. It out. Other than the death penalty, is there anything else in the new catechism that, that is controversial? Not that uh, I, I think that, some of the way they um, give weight to certain things over others, and maybe some of the language they use maybe isn't yeah, super Chris great. Plants, but, Chris, Christopher Plants raves about the 92. He loves the 92. And the thing is, it's because of there's a lot of Dave Arabum in it and there's a lot of scripture in it. And that's why he really likes the 92. I know Rob obviously likes the the, the catechism of Trent. And it's because the way the, like Rob really likes that old style of just look, this is what it is. You know, it's like I, I, I'm very black and white, but I do like some of the how they integrate a lot more of the Eastern side of Catholicism in the, in the newer catechism. I, just because I'm unfamiliar with it, so it's new to me and kind yeah. of exciting, right? But so I I have the um, uh, the Baltimore Catechism, which is phenomenal to teach the faith to your children. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's really that's what, what it's designed for. That's what it's designed for. It's, it's very good for catechesis for young kids. It's a lot of memorization and stuff, but I don't think it has the substance that the 92 has. No, I don't either, though. Kyle, Kyle, well, I mean, well, other than the death penalty c- controversy, the thing is, uh, the death penalty, I think the only legitimate argument against the death penalty is people uh, being falsely uh, convicted, right? There, that's the only legitimate, legitimate argument There's a legitimate it. argument against its use in situations, yes. I mean, well, just false convictions, America, one, and modern modern government falsely framing people, things like that. That's the only legitimate criticism. It it has to be a legitimate government to have legitimate authority. So the, you know, Nazi Germany, no, there's no legitimate use of the death penalty by a state like that or by the Soviet Union, things like that. Um, One could argue, can modern America legitimately execute someone justly? Probably not, especially without how politicized we're becoming. Well, right? that's where my issue comes. I, I, I would, I, I would say, just the last five years is where my opinion, because I was always a staunch pro death penalty guy. Like I was always like, no, no, no. The church has said this definitively. Like we've used mm-hmm. it in the past. It's in scripture. It's in, and I agree with all those arguments. Where I start to get a little worried is when I see, and and the thing is, when you talk to pro death penalty people, they brush off that the the whole argument of people have been uh executed falsely ironically but, enough a lot of people will will say that but in the same breath say oh i completely support it unequivocally but in the same breath say our government's corrupt and it's kind of yeah like, that's what drives that's why I, I like i i don't like the language francis used building up to it because him saying it's inadmissible i don't like that because it's almost implying morally inadmissible no, you know I if you would come out and clarify what exactly you meant so I don't think it's morally inadmissible. I think morally no. it's 100% acceptable. Yeah. It's the situations we're describing that I, I, I 
I hear the argument. That's all I'm saying. Well, here's my question: Is like I'm I'm there with you. I I don't think morally is inadmissible. I mean, I I think there's a lot of moral and reasons and and reasons along the you know justice and whatnot. Kind kind of like what Samantha is saying here. Um, and I don't necessarily agree with what Pope Francis. One of his reasonings was is that the jail systems are better and et cetera, et cetera. Well, or the prison systems. Well, that's a that's a very first world centric idea to begin with. But on top of it, and it, it, it's really only existed for the last century. And yeah, and like and and if you go to the, if you go to the flip side though, like I said, well, I don't think I can argue against the morality of the death penalty because I do believe it is moral. And it's in its proper use. Maybe you guys can clarify for me. I don't also see how if the church or Pope Francis has has changed the teaching, I also don't see how I can really that's really a hill for me to die on and argue against. Because at what line do we say we're going to submit to this? As long as it's not a violation, obviously, of 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 some moral precept. So I'm so kind of on the fence what, on I how I need to be about with. it. Publicly, it, what you know I, what I'm saying? What I think people take issue with is the way Francis went about it, where he he was uh, kind of it, it 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 almost in it, he implied that it's morally inadmissible. Now the thing is, the death penalty is something where people don't understand, especially modern people, because they think uh, being pro life is connected with it, right? Like we're we're anti abortion. We're not. I don't like the idea of pro life because. People think you're anti-death penalty and anti-abortion. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, the death penalty actually has the salvation of the soul of the person being uh, condemned to death in mind. Because what happens is when you put death before a person, it actually makes them contemplate their death. And it makes them have memento mori in their head. And that and the idea is to get them to, uh, to have a conversion and repent. That's actually and, a very good point because Tim, Timothy Gordon a couple of years ago gave a stat on one of his shows. I don't know if it was one with Trent Horn or not, but he gave a stat that people that are on death row are likely to have an act of contrition, yeah. even if it's an imperfect act of contrition. They are much more higher uh, uh, likely to have an act of contrition if, than those if, that are uh, on prison uh, for life, in prison. For I know life. you guys know, but if the audience has never heard of the book by uh, Dr. Edward uh, Fazer, I I, I don't know. I don't Phaser. Um, it's um, by Manchel is blood be shed. It is a defense of the death penalty from both from scripture, uh, magisterial teachings, um, as well as um, things like statistics. So it, it really, I, I love it. But uh, so what Pam, Pam says that the problem with the death penalty is the same as abortion. Um, she calls it slavery and a direct challenge to God's sovereignty. All I would say is, Read Romans, where where Saint Paul says that the the prince does not um, swing the sword in vain, right? Like, if the death penalty was immoral, like we're talking inherently evil, could God, could Jesus have submitted himself to it as part of salvation? And the answer is no. He could not have because because God by His nature cannot participate in something that is inherently evil. Jesus Himself even tells Pilate, "You would not have this authority, the authority to execute but it, not given unless to you it was God. given to you by God." So God gives the state the authority to execute people. That is that that is doctrine. It is de fide de fide doctrine because it is explicit in Scripture, and you can't contradict that. 
So what, but also you have to think about this. What, if you've ever seen what life in prison, especially American prisons looks like, what happens is people go into gangs. They go and they start a whole new life. Some of them go into drug dealing. Some of them get into all that. So the idea of the death penalty is to put their death before them and to actually get the soul to repent. And it really, it, you know, I mean, they, like they say, there's no atheist in the foxhole. When you have your death staring you before your face, you are very, you have a very different approach to things. And, uh, Thomas Aquinas really goes into that really well in the summa when he's describing the death penalty. Now, look, this show isn't a debate on the death penalty. We were just, yeah. you know, shooting some ideas out there and we, we always go off that. I mean, look, there's a lot of people that watch this show that don't watch the chosen because they, they like the banter and the Catholic commentary and the things we bring up. And that, you know, we had somebody, example. I think new, I mean, well, I mean, it's been, what time is it now? It's you saying the, con- the mouse converted. Yeah. Mouse? That Hinamoa top yeah, teaching test. No, 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 not no. Then her, but there was another one that made a comment. We never got around to saying anything, but they had just asked if you guys all hate hate the show so much. Why why watch? And I was like, well, I just made a comment that we did. I don't know if they're still in the chat or not, but it was about eight forty four. It's at eight forty four p.m. If you go up, but uh, but I think that's a new listener. I've never seen them in here before. Um, oh. but I was just gonna make the point that. You know, we, we don't hate the show. I mean, We're, like, oh, we, like anything. Just, wait, I don't hate the show at all. I like the show. We, we always, why? Somebody actually said that, huh? Uh, yeah. No, look. Okay, so um, here's the thing. Uh, Jason and I like the show more than Rob, right? Rob Rob has way more issues in it than Jason and I. But the also the idea is if there are theological issues, we want to bring them up. And there are a lot of Catholics watching the show. And a lot of these things are subtle. So, you know, having three Catholics watch the show, if we pick up on something, we want to make sure we discuss it with our Catholic audience, because sometimes these things are subtle. They go on, they go, you know, real quick and, you know, you don't catch them. And I, and if I you want to watch the show where, where everybody's in an echo chamber, I mean, it's kind of like they have those. And I think yeah, there's, there's other, the, there's other reviews for that. Yeah. The, the there's show other has chosen reviews that are echo chambers. And they just, they just fanboy yeah, the show. That's right. That's well, not well, well not, not only that, but we disagree on some things or, you know, whatnot. And we talk about it. I, I don't see the harm in that. I mean, no. And look, we, <laughs> uh, a lot of it is Protestant critique on here, you know, because I feel like a lot of the show is Catholic critique. Like I do, I think. I think I, some of the comments that chosen is thrown up on Instagram is Catholic critique, and they're making comments. Yeah. And, right. Think of all. Oh, we were going to discuss that. Well, that's what I said before. Like their their comment about that they put up on Instagram was that. Um, here, can I find? I can find. Yeah, that. pull it up. So it, this is a, a crazy idea the Protestants have that Jesus came to abolish religion, and it's absurd. Jesus nowhere came to abolish religion. He never says that anywhere. Not only that, he says, I did not come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. Now, the other thing you have to ask people is, when did Jesus ever say, I've come to abolish the covenantal structure of the people of Israel, of the people of God? He never did. So what you see in the Old Testament is the people of God. It's never an individual salvation where it's, uh, you know, uh, except Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, it was never presented as that. It was always the people of God, and the whole idea it, is we as a church are a community of believers, and we embody it, the faith. 
it would almost seem hip- hypocritical of Jesus to believe that, and then while on earth, live a religious life and following the the laws and and whatnot of the of the Jewish faith at the time, right? I mean, it would almost seem hypocritical if he came to say, well, these things are pointless and you don't need them. Why is he leading by example and doing these things? You know, I mean, yeah. Yeah, oh, it's, I, it's, did you find it, Rob? Uh, well, that didn't work. Hold on. <laughs> that's not, well, Rob, you have the comment right here, right? Yeah. We can just post the comment. Here's the bad news. Your religion, your church, the law, your efforts to be righteous won't save you. Here's the good news. You don't need your religion, your church, the law, or your efforts. This is the, they're trying to push faith alone, right? Now, it, it's, it's actually crazy to believe in faith alone because I don't even think Protestants believe in faith alone. They say it. They don't, they don't believe they it. They absolutely don't. I've said that for a long time. No. They say it because they think that they're supposed to say it, but none of them believe faith alone. I mean, that's crazy. Who do you really? So look, a lot of it is a, a way of semantically saying it. So they'll they'll say it like, um, you uh, out of gratitude for your salvation, you will do these acts out of gratitude, but you're not doing them to earn your salvation. But Catholics don't do these acts to earn their salvation. They do these acts through God's grace. It's I mean, we we believe we are saved by grace through faith, but works play a part in that because. What kind of a faith do you have if your works are not shown? Like well, James, James says, says, says show me, show me your faith, and I'll show you. You show me your faith, and I'll show you my works. And there, well, and it's well, and and it also the scripture also says that the demons believe and tremble. So if faith is all that's necessary, you know, the, and to the think demons that believe, James, I mean, to think that James, I know you didn't can say they're in that. the afterlife or they're they're not part of hum, you know, the human story, but still. It goes to point that faith isn't all that's needed, right? Because, I mean, look at the fall of the angels and stuff like that. It was it was more than just their lack of faith in God that caused them yeah. to fall, right? Yeah. Well, not just that. If if you look at James, what James is writing, to think that James isn't writing that as a direct response to people misinterpreting Paul, like he's literally writing that as a direct rebuke to the people who think it's faith alone. Right. I mean, Paul's writing the and it's like Peter says, he says, and speaking of Paul and all the things he writes, some of them are very confusing and people use them to their own destruction because Paul's writings are confusing. If you think that he's saying faith alone, he's not. So James addresses it and says, no, it's not faith alone. Even the day, even the demons believe you show me your faith and I'll show you my works. Well, and it's funny because as the saying goes, the only time that you see faith alone in the Bible is when it says you are not saved by faith alone. (laughs) You're not (laughs) saved by faith alone. Anthony, you actually bring up a great point. I I say that like you never do. Uh, (laughs) um, If it was faith alone, then there would have been no fallen angels because the angels they they obviously believed in God. They were given uh, that was Jason's point, but said that. (laughs) <laughs> that was Jason's part, right. but I still think I had a good point in there somewhere. <laughs> well, if he doesn't want to be a part of the show, then <laughs> I mean, I will take credit for Jason's point, but uh, you know, it's okay. I, I really didn't think anybody heard me because no, I was listening no, to you, Jason. But anyway, I, ahead, I'll bro. be honest. I honestly think that the three of us are the perfect combination for this. Uh, the show. I enjoy doing it with both of you. I think, I think you guys uh, challenge me in a lot of things. I, I, I really do enjoy doing it with both of you. I hope the three of us stick it out the whole season and continue on to the whole series. How um, many episodes are there on this thing? I'm not sure. 
Uh, Christianity does bring about major changes among the Jews and their practice to the point of splitting and conflict. But instead of the structure being destroyed, the structure is reshaped. That's it. That's a new mm-hmm. wineskins, right? Mm-hmm. New wine and new wineskins. So I really, I mean, that is what we're talking about. It's, it's a new structure and a new shape and you can't fit new wine into these old wineskins. They're just, there's going to be some changes here, but it's not a destruction of it. It's a reshaping of it. And that's literally why the, it was ironic that the chosen posted that comment on the episode where they did the wineskins. Um, no, they did that on episode three. No. Oh, that wasn't. Oh, okay. 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 Um, Yeah, because, yeah, because, I mean, you can see through the Catholic Church's teachings and its practices how much of a fulfillment it was of the Jewish way, in a more perfect way of the Jewish practices and and, and a lot of different aspects, right? So, again, I mean, it goes back, uh, and I think you mentioned it to where Jesus mentions he came to fulfill not to destroy so if you think there's a hard break between the old testament and the new testament and that none of none of that really matters to our faith today well then well then you're in contradiction to what jesus is saying what heresy is that there's no fulfillment which where where they think the old testament god is like different from the new testament Parthianism. Yeah, yeah, but 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 not even but not even that. Like like a lot of Protestants don't even necessarily believe that God is different. Just that he has changed changed his mind on how he he wants. And, and again, and again, God hasn't changed his mind. The story has, uh, I guess, the, the story of salvation has just developed, right? Like for like well, a better yeah, term. right. So you so like that's kind of why I like. Well, first off, real quick, I just want to say this to Pam. So, Pam, you're writing a uh, research paper on the death penalty. What what Rob said to read this book, please read Opposing Opinions before you write it. Not because I'm trying to convince you of the other opinion, because you should challenge yourself before you write it. Like, don't read only things that advance this preconceived notion you have. Read what the church taught before the current iteration. Oh, of they're the still on the death penalty in the, in the yeah. comments. Yeah, <laughs> well, I had to just address that real quick. But like Jason was saying, so I like the movie of um, – uh, uh, the uh, what? Which which movie is it? Uh, Noah. That's a clue. The movie Noah, right? So uh, the new that's one, the new one. Oh, I like the, the one with Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe. Here's why. Like it's the rock monsters. Here's why. Okay, <laughs> here's why I like it. You at this point in salvation history, we know so little about God. Okay, you really have to like we knowing what we know now, like you could look back on that movie and be like, oh, come on. But at this time, this is God revealing himself. So like God reveals himself slowly to man. Like we don't we don't have the Ten Commandments yet. We don't have any of that. So it's like you really have to put yourself in that position. The only thing I I didn't like in that movie is that they depicted Jesus as I mean, God as in the burning bush as a child. I wish they would have depicted him as. Uh, as a theophany of Christ, but you're not getting a Catholic making of this movie, right? So it, really the burning bush, like there are several theophanies in the Old Testament where uh, people have encounters with God, where Moses goes up to the mountain and has an encounter. Like all of those, I think, are best represented by having Christ come. Is it well because done, the movie? I thought it was great. Because I, I see Father movie. Father Daniel Rook uh says the world needed Russell Crowe's nor I never watched it just because I, I thought that it wouldn't be it would just not, be look, ridiculous. You have to take into account just like we're watching The Chosen, right? You have to take into account that this is a period in time in the biblical story where you don't know anything. This is this is the second covenant, 
right? This is after the world is falling apart, and I think they do a pretty oh, good job. Well, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> They're right over my head. Listen, I'm not. I'm not telling people this is biblically 100 percent accurate. I just I like the movie. It's a biblical story. There's nothing. Uh, there's nothing heretical in it, and it's like you want to check out the story of Noah. It's a pretty cool depiction of it. I thought. rock monsters. I, I, I know, but they're described as what? These are, look, these are the watchers, right? And they're described in scripture as like these weird creatures. Uh, the burning bush in the story of Noah. Are you combining Noah and Moses? Yeah, yeah absolutely. You, are. <laughs> you know why? Because I was just about to talk about um, the Ten Commandments with the, Charleston yes, Heston. No, 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 not not with Charleston Heston. With, uh, uh, oh man, the, I like the new, uh, the new no, Ten Commandments movie. Uh, what do you mean? A new, I like there's a new Ten Commandments. Yeah, it's not the Ten Commandments. It's uh, Exodus. Exodus with uh, what's his name? Come on, help me out here, guys. Help me out. Who's in the new Exodus movie? I have I have the movie. Let me. Put I don't it know. There's a new Exodus movie. <laughs> yeah, and it's really well done, and it's that's the one where they show uh, Moses t- at the burning bush, and uh, God c- uh, approaches him as a child. Um, let me see Exodus. The 1960 film. No. <laughs> Exodus with Gods and Kings. Christian Bale. Christian Bale. Christian Bale plays Moses. Thank you. Thank you, Brandon. Uh Batman Moses, yeah. <laughs> Bruce Bruce Wayne Moses. I'm Moses. <laughs> That's line of the night, Rob. I am Moses. <laughs> so that's the one where you got a little absolutely- Egyptian uh I was, <laughs> I was confusing the stories but yeah so moses when he goes to the burning bush um they depict uh the theophany in that of god as a child like a, a young boy who's like angry and yelling but other than that that's my only criticism of that in Mo- in noah i honestly the rock monsters that's it but like put your mind past that like just take some literary license in there come on did he did they borrow the rock monsters from uh tolkien Nah, they're pretty whoop. They're pretty poor. No, uh, yeah, <laughs> Psycho Moses. <laughs> what else is he in? What else is he in? Uh, oh, Memento. Man. No, he's not. When he got to Christian Bale, is it Memento? No, he's isn't that the guy who loses his memory in every skinny? few minutes? That's not Memento. That's the Machinist. Oh yes, you're right. The you're machinist. Right. The machinist. Yeah. He wasn't that. He's a great in that movie. But the, like, the, what other iconic roles that we could do impressions? <laughs> I'm Moses. Is, is, you're not going to top that. You're not going to top that. Rob, that was line of the night for sure. <laughs> yeah. Let my people go. Let my people go. <laughs> Some Egyptians just want to see the world burn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Are we really doing these? <laughs> yes. This is well beyond chosen at this point. <laughs> this is actually this is actually probably the funniest bit we've ever done on this show ever. This is like an old school radio bit. Uh, Connor, Connor joined. How do we get to this? I'm Connor's just, here. Connor's here. Yeah, he popped up a little bit ago. Connor still hasn't told me if he's 100% coming to trivia tomorrow. All right, so guys, let's wrap this up because I got to go to bed. Um, we have we have trivia tomorrow night returning to Meaning of Catholic. Um, <laughs> you already missed that line. Rob pulled that line before. Yeah, that's that any, true. I any, did, show, did I? any show he does with Anthony is hell. And he gave us, I'm Batman or I'm Moses. Rob, <laughs> you, you win line of the night tonight. Um, 
Well, it's two and a half hours. Rails. Apparently, I go, I no, it's been off the rails. Two hours. It's been off about, the rails since nine o'clock. How about <laughs> Moses? Stand your ground. The Lord will fight for you. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I knew more Christian Bale movies. All I want to do is. Oh, oh he was in. Uh, wasn't he in the um, the Prestige? The Prestige, right, the magician was great one. in that one. That, that was that, a, honestly, that's a good movie. Oh, great movie! I'm falling asleep here, guys. So, all right, we have trivia tomorrow night on Meaning of Catholic. Uh, Kyle will be on trivia with us. Literally told me I couldn't do tomorrow because it conflicted with trivia. Good, Kyle. I'm glad you have your priorities straight because he couldn't have an interview with Thursday on Thursday because of trivia. I mean, if you want to, if you want to do an afternoon interview, just, with Pride's just, producer. just saying, he had an inter- he had a live show same time as as we were doing. So, just just saying, Ooh, doing this, uh, like Kyle. Today. Yeah. With all right, Connor. With Connor said he will be there for trivia tomorrow. Um, Connor did. Yeah, Connor said he'll be there tomorrow. All right, so Connor will be with us tomorrow. All right, guys, we have trivia tomorrow. Then Friday, we're not a hundred percent yet, but you may see the show I said I'd never do on Friday, where. We actually talk about things I said I'd never talk about. We may discuss the hierarchy, the current state of things, Pell dying, Francis's pontificate. I, I may or may not be there. It might just be Anthony and if it may be me and who shall not be named. Me and somebody. Yeah. <laughs> I almost said his name. I almost said his name. All right. So me and somebody. Uh if Rob, you want to join us, I will push it off till nine o'clock. Um if you think you can't make it, let me know because then I'll do eight o'clock. Sure. You'll push it back late for him, but you won't push it back later. on a Friday well, night. Friday and his wife. Friday. Night. Yeah, my wife's away. It's on a Friday. Oh. Jason, if you want to oh. do a Friday night show, I'll go at ten o'clock at night. I don't care. I can't do it on a weeknight. You're so rude, Jason. If we started this at nine o'clock, if we started this at nine o'clock, this would have been a two and a half hour episode. No, I guarantee it. Right. We so we started on eight, topic. And we can this hang. This is it. dangerous going early. Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, the theme for trivia. I don't think we have one. I, you know what? I'm gonna Just look through season Patrick two Madrid. kickoff. I'm gonna yeah, season two kickoff. I'm gonna look through Patrick Madrid's trivia book t- uh, tomorrow at work. They, I'm there's see, a like, new intro stuff. for tomorrow. Everyone is oh, it on? It, is it on avoiding? It's Babylon? on meaning of Catholic. I'm meaning of Catholic. Yeah. Jason, can you make it? or You can't. What time is it? Eight. Yeah. No, like eight Seven? central or eight eight Seven. eastern. Seven centrals. What do you got? Uh, the girls have wrestling. Yeah, I might be able to make it if I, I might listen. If if you get if you get home from wrestling and like we're already in it, and you want to just come and hang. You can jump on late. Okay. I mean, that you can't compete, that. but if you want to just jump on and hang, he says that. But we'll give you enough points to make you competitive. You know that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Does, it, does it matter who wins anyway? I mean, come on. Well, uh, but at least you actually get a it to- does because I keep score since uh, a certain friend of ours was messing up the score. <coughs> <you>? I'm Connor. <coughs> I'm Connor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm the keeper of the scores. I'm Connor. All right, yeah, guys, we're gonna wrap it up. So you're just leaving us at this point. Yeah, everybody's done. So this is a long one, man. I have to go to bed. My son's dying to go to bed, and I'm still talking down here. So. All right, uh, gentlemen, this was a fun one. I enjoyed it. I'm going to chop up this last segment on our, you know, theorizing on hell and Chopping death penalty screw, stuff. DJ Screw. I'm going to chop it up. Jason, if you want that clip to throw on your channel, that's a good one to put on your channel. Which one? Uh, the whole Rob end Cohen of the show. Moses, I thought, I thought the Mount. last hour of this show was really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I I need to do it, but I just haven't made time to cut a cut an intro. You're a tech pe- guy, dude. <laughs> you know how long it takes me to upload these, by the way? <laughs> I'm sure. No, Rob. Honestly, look. No, I mean, I, I mean to 
to for Jason to have access to him. Well, not just that. Rob is so much behind the scenes that, like, so like for the trivia, I make sure I come up with the questions. I'm like, I don't want to burden Rob anymore. I try. Rob's even for this on show, the show, Anthony's stuffing chicken wings down people's throats at work. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm writing up. Look, I break down the scenes for us. I try to do as much on air stuff as I can because I'm not capable of doing what Rob does. It's like I I try as hard as I can to carry my weight. Rob does a lot. I, like Which a, is why a lot. I find it so humorous when you say your wife doesn't know who makes the thumbnails. She doesn't know. She doesn't know if I'm that. My wife doesn't know anything that's going on here. She knows Nothing. you're not making the thumbnail. I hope. I hope he says know. that one day, and she walks up right behind him on camera. I don't. Just <laughs> slaps him across the back of the head. <laughs> she would. <laughs> I'm talking tough, but she would. Um, uh, Kyle, your prize for winning was we let you come back on and host. Let you host it. Well, you host it. That he's never getting that again. I saw some of the clips he put on his channel. This guy's got nerve. <laughs> I saw yeah, some I of liked the clips. Them. They were all just making fun. I'm they sure were you like? They them. were all good. Yeah, yeah. What's the Not a lie was detected. <laughs> all right, guys, I'm going to bed. Rob, take us out, boy. Okay. Have a good night, everyone. United the clans. Enoch. Let's go. Yo, yo. Uh, take me back to my reversion. Unite the clans, I give thanks to each person. Such same holy 